This is Jocko Podcast number 364 with Dave Burke and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Dave. Good evening. The Misties who volunteered were among the most talented, hardworking, courageous group of men I have ever encountered. To a man, they were remarkable pilots. They worked long hours, days on end, to get the program started. During the early missions, we were consumed with establishing procedures, deciding on tactics, constructing our maps, testing varied equipment and aircraft configurations, and learning the area. It was really hunt and peck, trial by fire. We decided on three cycle missions using two in-flight refuelings. We were looking for road traffic, storage areas, and SAMs, which were beginning to move into the lower parts of the pack. Those early misty missions were really hairy as we experimented with how to survive in a dense AAA environment while marking targets and directing strikes. Though facking was not a new concept, the US Air Force had employed facts since World War II, fast facking was new and we were truly plowing new ground. We had to learn to operate and survive in a very dense threat environment while operating for extended periods at low altitude, dicey stuff. Our loss rate during the first six months was 42%, a steep, expensive, and tragic learning curve. I cannot emphasize too strongly the courage of the first group of men who raised their hands. They were going where no jet pilot had ever been before to do dangerous things no one had ever done. And that right there is an excerpt from a book, a book called Misty, which is, the book is made up of a bunch of first person accounts of Misty pilots in Vietnam. And that particular account was from a man named Bud Day, who is the founder and the first commanding officer of the Misty Squadron, which he commanded for about two months before he was shot down. He was captured by the communists. He actually escaped his initial captivity, but he was shot and recaptured. And then he was sent to the Hanoi Hilton, where he spent five years and seven months as a POW. Upon his release, he was awarded the Medal of Honor for his personal bravery and his leadership in the face of extreme enemy pressure. But even while he was in captivity, the rest of the squadron, the Misty Pilots, they continued on. They flew the F-100 Super Sabre, which is known as the Hun. There were 157 pilots that served as MISTI Fast Facts, and Facts stands for a forward air controller. They were around from 1967 to 1970. And as forward air controllers, that meant they did that from the sky. They were marking targets and directing other aircraft to take out those targets, and it was a very dangerous job, especially because the Misty pilots did a bulk of their flying in North Vietnam where they were exposed to the most intense of the enemy air defenses. And of those 157 pilots, 34 were shot down, two were shot down twice, 23 were recovered, four 
were captured by the enemy. Seven were killed in action. But they were able to accomplish their mission. They were able to get bombs on target, destroy critical enemy nodes, and deliver close air support to troops on the ground. And it's an honor to have one of those pilots with us here tonight to discuss his experiences and his lessons learned. His name is Dick Rutan. He served 20 years in the Air Force. And in addition to his combat experience, he was a test pilot, a record-setting pilot. He piloted the first plane around the world with no stopping and no refueling. He's also an author. He wrote a book called Voyager and another book called The Next Five Minutes. And it's an honor, like I said, to have him here tonight, Dick Rutan. Dick, thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's great to be here. I'm a great fan. It's, uh, man, when you think about this new mission that you guys picked up and what it's like to learn <laughs> when your learning curve is your learning in combat, that's a, that's a rough thing to get into. A rough way to try and figure things out. <laughs> well, trial by fire, that's why it's called the, initially it was called the uh, Voyager or the, uh, the Misty Experience, the, the Misty uh, Experiment. There we go. Anyway, there's a, there's a thing on PBS that's very popular now about that that was made up. So. Oh, about the Misty pilots? Well, it's called Misty, the Misty, Ex- uh, the Misty Experiment. Oh, okay. It's on uh, PBS. Oh, well, I haven't seen that one yet, but I'll definitely check that one out because it's anytime you're exploring new ground like that and you're doing it in a combat situation, that's a, that's a scary thing to do. And you guys were definitely doing it. Um, so let's before we get into that, let's let's start at the beginning and about kind of where you came from in the beginning. And I'm going to go to your so your book. You've written two books. This one's called The Next Five Minutes: Embracing the Impossible. And uh, you say in this book, my father, Dr. George A. Rutan, always said he had an inkling that my life would involve adventure. Even as a baby in diapers, I was exploring our farm in rural Oregon. I wanted to see and touch and explore it all. Looking back, I realized that our parents gave their children the precious gift of freedom to explore the world and experience life. They never held us back from doing anything, even if some thought it risky or dangerous. My dad, lovingly called Pop, was a product of the Great Depression and a World War II Navy veteran. He took advantage of his VA benefits and put himself through dental school, then moved his family to Danuba. Am I saying that right? That's right, Danuba. Danuba, a small agricultural heartland town 35 miles southeast of Fresno, California. It was the perfect place to grow up to fly Cessnas and Piper Cubs, to ride motorcycles, and to throw toilet paper out of an airplane over the high school during a Friday night football game. While riding my BSA motorcycle, I was often chased out of town by local cops, but usually found a way to ditch them by riding through neighborhood vineyards. I knew they couldn't catch me, although many tried. I enjoyed the thrill of this cat and mouse game even when the officers would caution my parents about my unruliness. So there's a little glimpse into your uh, into your childhood. Sounds like you were a handful. No, it's great. Uh, Dynamo was an absolute fantastic place to grow up. Had the freedom, a lot of agriculture, and uh, that's when we learned how to fly. 
Long. Little airplanes. Whoa. And would be buzzing and throwing toilet paper out like they said. <laughs> so what, what, did, what did your dad do in the Navy? Uh, dad got in at the, at the very end of the, of the, uh, of the war. In fact, uh, he should have been exempt. And he called up and there was a mistake someplace and they, uh, uh, they gave him a draft notice. He says, hey, I'm married and I have a family and I should be exempt. And, and they thought, well, yeah, you're right. He, but he says, you know something, my country's at war. God damn it, I'm gonna go. And he did. And so what did he do in the Navy? Uh, he was, uh, I think a, he was a corpsman there and uh, Farragut. Uh, in fact, that's up where we live right now in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, by Lake Ponderay, and there's a big, huge naval base up there. And uh, uh, that's where he spent the, the end of the war. He never made it into, uh, into a ship or into combat or anything. And then he, then he used his GI Bill to pay for dental school and became a dentist. That's right. Like many of those vets, they took advantage of that. And I think it was a, probably one of the best investments our country ever made. Yeah. And then, you know, you met, you've already talked to me. We've, we're like two paragraphs into the beginning of the book, and you're already talking about flying Cessnas. What was your first experience in a plane? Well, uh, uh, it was right after World War II. I was just a little kid. I can't remember exactly what it was, but my mother... Uh, when dad was going through dental school. We didn't have any money. And for some reason, mom uh, took me out to a place called Fleabob there in Riverside. It's a little grass field. And she uh, bought an airplane ride for this little kid. And to this day, I can remember almost every detail of that experience. Uh, we went out there and uh, we we're going to fly and that was a pretty neat thing. But, and at that time, that airport was a, just a grass field someplace. And uh, it was in a Piper, it's a J-5 Piper Cub, and the back seat was a little wider, and then that means that two people could sit there. Okay, well, they put Mom and I in the back, and when I sat out, I couldn't see out. You know, the windows were too high. <laughs> and I said, there's no fine way <laughs> that I'm gonna sit in this hole in this experience. So I stood up and, and grabbed onto the pilot's seat. And you know, it was an old airplane, and, and I can still remember the stuffing, and I can still remember what it smelled like. And I remember that the tires had no tread. And somebody came out and hand-propped the airplane and got it going. Uh, and we accelerated in the big thrill of, of lifting off and seeing an entire new world that I had never experienced even existed. And for that 15 minutes that we flew over Riverside, and I still remember the, the famous Mission Inn, and uh, had no idea that later on that I was going to be honored with a set of wings in the flyer's wall. But anyway, I looked down, and it was so amazing. And, uh, and it would, what I saw that day would change my life forever. Uh, Mom would say, her, her two sons, uh, they had aviation fuel instead of blood. <laughs> and they were not issued birth certificates. They were issued... <laughs> Uh, flight plans. <laughs> and so it, from that moment on, it was in a, an a extreme, I guess, abnormal fascination for aviation. And unfortunately, maybe at the expense of a more rounded character development. <laughs> now, I knew a lot about airplanes, uh, everything. 
Uh, as I flew over, you could identify which one they were, and I knew what kind of motor engines they had and so forth. But the other things to make a rounded experience for growing up, I knew absolutely jack squat about any of that. <laughs> so as you're growing up, so you definitely want to be a pilot. Oh, absolutely. Did Had you want to be a military pilot? Uh, yes. Uh, to go back a little, uh, to go back a little bit more, uh, I grew up in the dawn of the victory of World War II, and this time I became fascinated with aviation, and then, and I was really fascinated about combat, and I found it very intriguing, and as I learned more about those guys that flew out of the 8th Air Force in East Anglia, in England, and those long missions in B-17s and B-24s. And I learned about the loss rates. You know, one group would come back and 600 beds would be empty. Who are these people that did that? When three-fourths of them were casualties. And I thought, how in the hell? You know, it's one thing to go and do that once, but if you're the only one that comes back from your whole squadron with wounded on board, how in the love of whatever do you get back in another airplane and do that again? I was fascinated. Who the hell are these people? And then you had to ask the question again. You know, I, I kind of wanted to be a warrior. Uh, I always thought it was the ultimate in human competition, is where the pinnacle, is where each other would compete for the ultimate prize, and that's your life. And uh, I always, it's fascinated. How can I, could I do something like that? And I had to find out one way or another. Uh, I had a learning experience, a learning problem. It was diagnosed just a few years ago, actually, <laughs> when I was trying to write this book. And I was telling people how I read and how I process things. But it was a dys dys dyslexia, <laughs> whatever that is, <laughs> dyslectic. And I always had a hard time in school. Uh, But uh, that, that fascinating, that the fascination for whatever the warrior's life was, I don't know, I had to find out for myself. Now, every young warrior grows up, and pretty soon he's a warrior, and the time goes by, and he becomes the age to be a warrior. Okay, I'm a young guy, and I'm, I'm, in, the, I'm in the thing right now. This is warrior. And then you walk outside and look around and think, well, what war am I going to fight? And it's a small window of opportunity, actually. And I looked around, frick, it was Vietnam. But I still had to find out. And that was something that was kind of gnawing in my, in my back uh, all that time. I couldn't wait to do that. I had to find out if little Dickie Rutan can do that. And, uh, you know, our parents gave us some really important things. One of them was freedom. There's the world out there. I give you life. You can make of it what you want. And I remember, uh, well, my mom would take it to, to air shows. And this was in Merced, California, and I was a little kid. And I'll never forget that. I was walking up there, and there was an RF-84, a reconnaissance F-84 uh, jet. Smell like a jet, kerosene. And I remember looking in the windows, the camera windows, and they had scantily clad females <laughs> in there. And I thought, wow, this is really cool. 
And then I saw that pilot standing there, and he looked really cool. Man, he had his G-suit on, his flight suit on, he had his wings, and he was a pilot, man. And he was a flyer. He could go and fly that airplane. And I stood there and looked up at him. And my mother, what she said right then was really important, kind of a turning place in my life. And my mom looked at me, and she says, Dick, would you like to do that? I says, oh, God, would I ever... But then I said something to the fact that I don't think that I could ever achieve that. And she grabbed me by the neck of the nap, and she said in no uncertain terms, looked at me and she says, if you want to do that, you can, and don't you ever say that you can't do something like that. And that was the, the motivation. Uh, like she says, <clears throat> you can do, if you can dream it, you can do it, and the only way to fail is if you quit. And to achieve all those things that you dream about, all you have to do is manage the motivation. And so on that day, on that Castle Air Force Base in front of that F-84, she instilled the fact that I could really do that. Now, was she able to take that focus and get it towards your grades in school? Because no. according <laughs> to your book, it didn't no, quite I always get had there. problems in school. And, and you just and that was driven somewhat by your dyslexia. It was by dyslexia. Nobody could, uh, uh, nobody could identify it, or nobody could evaluate what the hell was Bert or was Dickie having a problem in school. In fact, my dad, uh, right after grade school, right after high school, he sent me down to a university, I think, in Southern California, for an aptitude test. Hey, is this, you know, who is this kid? Is he what? What's his aptitude? Is is he a college type and, and whatever? And I went down and took the test. And Pop came back and says, uh, it scored very, very low in, well, like in English, as an example, uh, communication skills. But I, I was very extremely high mechanical, uh, very high mechanical aptitude. And so then I wasn't going to be a college guy, obviously. And uh, not to jump ahead too much, but I went in the Air Force right out of high school. And as I was going through advancement and so forth, to be a lieutenant colonel, I had to have a college degree. So in that time, they had a bootstrap program. Uh, we're talking about motivation again, the bootstrap program. So here I am. I'm going to be a lieutenant colonel. I got about 18 years in the service. And they sent me off to uh, clean, killing, clean Texas. Uh, the American Technological University, and for about a semester or whatever it was, three or four or five months. And I went out there by myself and in a little apartment. Now, here this older guy, you know, he's been to Vietnam and we've been to the, the Cold War and, and setting nuclear alert and stuff. And I'm looking around at all these kids out here drinking and raising hell and chasing <laughs> girls. And I wasn't doing any of that. Like, and it dawned on me, and I says, Hey, uh, you know, uh, you did have problems with this. And I thought, this is college. You know, geez, I'm always scared of college. I wonder how I'll do. And then I thought what the motivation was. I got a family and two kids. I need to get promoted. And if I don't, I'm going to give up retirement and all those other benefits and stuff. And the humility of coming back and failing this thing. And so I figured out a way. Uh, I got a briefcase, and I put a tape recorder in it, and I sat down in that seat 
right in front of that professor. <laughs> and I didn't have anything else. I wasn't drinking and I wasn't chasing girls or anything. So every, every word that he had, I wrote uh, notes, you know, detailed notes of this thing. And here this dyslectic kid that had uh, a problem in any kind of academic situation, he graduated with a, with a, a BS degree on the dean's list and a 4.0 average. <laughs> Holy bananas. And it's just, it's just the motivation. Say so you can accomplish anything if you can, all you have to do is manage the motivation. If you keep yourself motivated or, mo or motivate those around you, uh, as an example, the World Flight Project. Uh, I kept thinking, and we had some horrible times, you know, challenges, the five and a half years with no money, having to build this big, huge airplane ourselves by hand, uh, uh, the flight test, dangerous as hell. I don't know how I ever survived that thing, this frail little airplane that was going to go 29,000 miles. Wow. <laughs> and, and when things were falling apart and I wanted to give up, about motivation again. I would go out in a special place in this little, little crummy little airport, Mojave, abandoned, semi-abandoned military field in, in Mojave, California, in the high desert next to Edwards Air Force Base. And I have a special place that I would sit down in the hangar, <clears throat> by the hangar, looking the ramp and looking out over the desert. And, and it's some, you know, just insurmountable problem, difficulties. And I'd close my eyes and I would try to imagine what it would feel like to land at Edwards Air Force Base having accomplished aviation's last milestone. And I'd close my eyes and let that feeling permeate through my psyche. And I'd realize this is the last, you know, the last milestone in aviation. It's an unrefueled world flight. And I'd think, and I'd loud after thinking about that and let it settle into my psyche, I thought, you know, I'd feel pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I'd feel pretty good. And for five and a half years, when I was really down and dejected, I'd sit out there and close my eyes and try to visualize that. And then that was manage, manage the motivation. Uh, and I found that that's really a key thing. And I try to tell people about that. If you can dream it, you can do it. But just manage the motivation, and you can accomplish anything. Now, as you're growing up, you also you got your brother Bert, right? Right, and brother he, Bert. And it sounds like you two are thick as thieves in everything that you're doing. Right? <laughs> well, not really. We were five years apart, so therefore we were never in the same school at the same time. Uh, I was gone. Uh, you know, went to a high school, and and being five years apart, I was gone a mm -hmm. year and before he even started. So. We weren't really all that close, I guess, in some ways. But you know, well, I guess than, it seems like you you became close later. Well, yeah, we were brothers. Uh, he was, you know, I was the guy that was riding motorcycles and getting chased by the cops and stuff, and, <laughs> and buzzing around Friday night high school games and being the the long haired uh, Elvis Presley haircut with dirty Levi's hanging on the last the last hair on my ass and so forth. And, you know, he was the one that was more studious. I think that, uh, that the education thing, uh, the two brothers, uh, he, got a lot of, he got a lot of what I needed to, to go to school. And of course, I took away from him some of the, the mechanical part of it and so forth. And that's what, so, so you're growing up in the 50s because you're born in what, 30, 
38? 38, right. So you're growing up in the 50s. This is an, in California in the 50s. Elvis, motorcycles, Levi's jeans. Like you had the whole thing going on you right out of a movie. American Graffiti. That's it. If you remember that movie, yep. it, I mean, I thought that they had done American Graffiti in my little town <laughs> because all those characters, I knew every one of them. I went to school with them. Now, you also mentioned in the book that you were scared of heights. Yes. What was that all about? Uh, well, uh, a phobia. Uh, well, I call it it's edge phobia, I think. I was really, really, and my brother and I both have edge phobia. If you get, I couldn't ride in glass elevators, or I couldn't look off a tall building or look over a cliff. And I didn't realize, you know, I, this later on during the, the Voyager project, is that uh, I always thought that phobias were just sissy things. You know, you know, so what? You're, what are you scared of height? Not heights, but you're scared of, of uh, what? Spiders? Or scared of being in a tight place? Uh, and I just thought that was that was a sissy thing. But it was. Uh, but the fear of heights it it became a debilitating phobia. That I'd go over next to a cliff or something and uh, become cold and clammy, uncontrolled shaking, extreme heart rates, uh, inability to, uh, in the ragged edge of being panicked. And so I've had that all my life, I guess. I just, how do you get cured to that? Stay the hell away from <laughs> high places. Don't look off big cliffs and stuff. And I thought everybody had that. You know, you're supposed to be afraid of being high for crying out loud. <laughs> So I just thought that was normal until uh, that particular thing happened uh, during the stress of our Voyager project. Uh, and there was a lot of stress, mental stress and stuff for that. You know, no money, trying to do it with volunteers. People, volunteers would not show up. They'd only do half of it. And it was very stressful, especially with no money. And the thing is, the hell with it. We're going to do it anyway. It just—it's a neat thing. So I took up and took off in my uh, long easy that I built, uh, one of the first models that my brother designed, called Long Easy. Uh, and I took off one day, and I did the first turn out of traffic, and it hit me. Uh, that debilitating phobia happened to me in flight. I never had any problem in flight, just looking over the edge of a cliff, and it hit me. It hit me so bad. Uh, cold and clammy, heart race, uh, inability to do almost anything. And I skidded the airplane around and finally damn near crashed on the runway trying to get back. And taxied in and then sitting there by myself. And the heart rate would slow down I could kind of relax a little bit. And then I thought, holy crap, Dick, you're right in the middle of the Voyager project. This is your project. You're going to be the commander. You're going to be the guy, you're going to be the guy that lands at Edwards Air Force Base and taxied up uh, for the whole world, having accomplished this great uh, milestone achievement. And I can't fly. <laughs> I'm screwed. What the hell am I going to do? Um, I knew right away that I could never tell anybody about that. You know, who in the hell would ever fly with me again? And rightfully so, I wouldn't blame him. I said, this guy 
for some unknown reason, could have a debilitating phobia. I mean, that's a grounding thing. And it so happened, and it was in Las Vegas. It was in the, the Hilton Hotel. And I was sitting at the bar. That Some real strange things happened. Fortuitous. What happened? At the bars in Vegas? Well, it was in a bar, but the, <laughs> that wasn't the point. I remember, for some reason, I... I sat down next to some guy, and we struck up a conversation. And I found out that he ran he runs a clinic for fear of flight. You know, people have that passengers, and people come in, and uh, they go through a program about trying to overcome fear of flight. I said, "What? Boy, <laughs> I need to know about this." And so, as it turned out, he was very forthcoming. And I would ask questions, you know, the details of the program and how you do that. What is, I mean, how do you cure people of this thing for crying out loud? And he was very forthcoming. And boy, old Dick, he was taking detailed memory notes of everything that happened. And then I realized, Dick, you can never tell anybody about that. In fact, I don't think anybody ever knew until they read my book. Uh, anyway, and I did it. It was a self, it was a self-help, a self-cure thing, and it was really incredible. And at the end of my self, <laughs> my self-taught clinic, I have no fear of flights, no fear of heights, any place. I thought, wait a minute, you're supposed to have a little bit of fear because if you fall, you could get hurt really bad. What was the crux of getting through that? Well, because. Uh, just so for context for everybody that doesn't know the whole story, I mean, when you're working on the Voyager flight, when you had this, so you've been you've been scared of heights your whole life, but you'd also been a pilot your whole life at this point. You'd flown in Vietnam, you'd right. parachuted, you'd done a bunch of things that had to do with heights. But then for some reason, in the middle of this effort to go and fly around the world in the Voyager aircraft, you're getting another little aircraft, which by the way, I look at your your brother's little aircrafts that he built and they're like little one-seaters. They look like you could, they look like a little model airplane that I used to build, right? <laughs> so maybe that's what you were scared of. But you get up on this flight and all of a sudden you get this, well, this height panic. Yeah, see, uh, when this thing, the panic happened, I've already been through my civilian thing and I was a flight instructor and I went in the Air Force and went through pilot training, went through combat, uh, set nuclear alert. All those things have already been done before I finally did my 20 years in one microsecond, by the way. <laughs> and we could talk about what was going on then. Uh, so anyway, I got out at, at 20 years in a microsecond and then I joined my brother and then we did the, the round the world thing. So I had, I had flown a lot and None of that phobia or scaredness or anything ever manifests itself in flight. You know, I could, you know, here I'm a fighter pilot for crying out loud. Uh, we do air shows. <laughs> and um, I just felt right at home, and there was never any situation until that one particular thing under a lot of stress that it, it finally crawled out of my psyche and hit me really bad, and I had to cure myself of it. So what did you do to cure yourself, though? Well... Um, first of all, you have to get all the symptoms going, I mean, real quick. And so I was in, uh, you know, there's some of these hotels that, that have a matri an atrium inside, and you come out of your room and you're looking inside the hotel, and, they're, you know, you look over the edge, and it's really a long ways down there. <laughs> and you go up to the edge, and you get all the symptoms going, all of them. 
And it took all the willpower I could to almost drag myself, grab the edge and pull myself up and look at it. And the more that I'd look down, the more, the more this phobia would just explode into my psyche. Heart rate, breath, skin cold and clammy, and uncontrolled shaking. And the first thing you do with this, you get all the symptoms going. And then you identify one part of your body and you concentrate on it totally on that particular thing. And I chose my right elbow because it was shaking. And I concentrate as much as I can, and I finally, after maybe, no kidding, after 20 minutes, I could get that one elbow to stop, to, to, to stop shaking. And I says, oh, that's really cool. I says, well, I'm gonna try the other elbow. So as soon as I would go to work on the other elbow, the first one would start again. <laughs> then you'd have to go back and do that. But that was, it was a, a procedure that you would get one, you would slow down one arm, and then you were able to, to control it while you went to the other arm, or the right leg, or the right calf, or one part of it. And so you go through this procedure, you drag yourself up there, and, and uh, this phobia would just explode on you. Everything was going. Then you go down, right elbow, left elbow, right knee, left knee, da -da -da -da, until you got them all calm. And if you concentrate on it, you can keep them quiet. But as soon as you would try to do something else, boom, they'd explode again. But what I'm getting at is, is you go through this procedure, uh, and you can, can finally uh, uh, start to control everything. And then your skin isn't cold and clammy anymore and you feel relaxed. But the problem was, I can control my breathing. I can decide when to take a breath and not. But what do you do about this damn thing in my chest that's going like mad, really high, really high um, heart rates? And then there was the thing called biofeedback. And they talk about how you go with biofeedback to be able to control your heart rate. And then pretty soon, I could go up, and if, it, if a tinge would happen, I'd go right over left elbow, and just calm everything down. And then eventually, eventually, I had no symptoms whatsoever. Not even a normal fear of heights on the edge. <laughs> Got and, it solved. And then, <laughs> but, but then you think, hey, there's this thing uh, back in the corner of Dick's psychic someplace, this gremlin could crawl out again. That's why I could never tell anybody about that. You gotta keep that one quiet, especially the insurance people. <laughs> especially the insurance or the FAA and my medical and stuff. Because I knew that that was a grounding, a big time grounding item for the FAA. Um, so that, let, let's get back, I wanna get back to uh, sort of how you got into flying in the first place. I'm gonna go back to the book here. And again, look, the book is awesome. So many so many details inside the book. Just go get the book. I'm gonna read some highlights from it. Well, but there's plenty more highlights that we're not gonna read. But just to kind of talk through the story a little bit, you say this, throughout my childhood, I struggled with academics, a struggle that was almost debilitating. Regardless of how hard I might try, it seemed I was doomed for failure. I was held back a year in elementary school, but nothing improved. By the time I reached high school, Pop decided to have a battery of tests run to help me clarify my strengths and weaknesses. It was determined I had exceptional high mechanical aptitude, but skills in other areas suggested I was not college material. Decades, decades later would pass before it was discovered I suffered from undiagnosed dyslexia. What I did know 
was I had a gift and a passion for flying and aspired to make my mark doing something in that field. Fresh out of high school, I could hardly wait for the opportunity to fly high in the stratosphere and make those white vapor contrails, so I signed up for the United States Air Force Aviation Cadet Program. After taking all the tests and going through the rigorous physical and written exams, I was told I was qualified. I was not qualified to be a pilot, even though I was already a civilian commercial pilot, but they had a special program for me I could become a navigator. I couldn't believe it. I was fully physically qualified. I had fighter pilots eyes, but did not score the best in academics. I suspect that I had, that that had everything to do with their decision to reject my application for pilot training. I complained to my Air Force recruiting sergeant. He told me all I had to do was when I got to pre-flight at Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio was tell them about my civilian pilot status and they would change me right over to pilot training. <laughs> that was the first, that was one of the first lies told to me in my new way of life away from home. It all seemed so simple, and I signed the dotted line. This was the first time I'd ever been away from my mom, my family, and the safety of my sheltered life. I stepped off the bus in my low hanging Levi's and long, greased up Elvis haircut. I soon discovered I would lose my cool hair, and during the next two weeks, would only be allowed to mutter yes, sir, or no, sir. This once shit hot civilian pilot was now off to nav school. It nearly broke my heart. Along with my spirit, the cadets assigned to pilot training were issued brand new shiny helmets while I was issued three large books of celestial sight reduction tables. <laughs> so that's your introduction. You get, you get uh, this assignment to be a navigator. You go to nav class. You end up as a backseater, as a Rio, a radar intercept officer. You get stationed in Oregon. From Oregon, uh, you get stationed up in Iceland. And then when you get to Iceland, you you apply for pilot training again, and you get accepted. Um, and and when you get accepted for that, you get assigned to an air transport squadron, uh, which is flying in and out of Vietnam. Which now the Vietnam War is kind of getting, kind of getting started, or starting to escalate, I should say. Well, yeah. What happened? Yeah, I had no interest in navigating big cargo airplanes back and forth. (laughs) So then I went into the fighters. You know, I was flying fighters, but in the back seat as a radar intercept officer. And um, then I applied for pilot training. For some reason, if I fly in the back seat long enough, according to the Air Force, I got a lot smarter. (laughs) So then I was smart (laughs) enough that I could go to pilot training. So while I was waiting for to go to pilot training, I was assigned to uh, C-124s, cargo, big old, they call it uh, big old shaky. And while I was waiting to go to pilot training, uh, I was actually flying as a navigator now in this big, huge cargo airplane. This is in, uh, you know, right in the middle of the Vietnam War, back and forth to Saigon. And, and as it turned out, uh, those hours that I spent at 8,000 feet in a C-124 waiting to go to pilot training gave me some incredible uh, understanding of what I was going to face later on in life to fly this Voyager around the world. And as it turned out, having had that nav experience, that may have been, that may have been critical to the success of the flight around the world in the Voyager. So I don't know, maybe, maybe fate goes around and it comes back around again. Uh, who can tell? Uh, so, you, But you do end up, finally, like you said, you got a lot smarter 
as you as you flew around in the back of the airplanes you got a lot smarter you got accepted for pilot training and you say this in the book before i knew it pilot training 67d was ready to begin and my time as a navigator came to an end i was off off to Laughlin Air Force Base in Del Rio, Texas, right on the Rio Grande River, west of San Antonio. Although I didn't appreciate it at the time, my experience as a navigator over vast stretches of open ocean and training with radar would prove to be a vital factor in the successful completion of Voyager's flight years later. Because of my academic challenges, I knew I had to work clever, work hard, and maintain my motivation to be successful in pilot training. I would sneak a tape recorder into class by concealing it in my briefcase. I made it a point to sit front and center row so I could capture every word of each lecture. With the help of these taped lectures, I arduously wrote impeccable notes to study from and aced every test. I graduated number one in my pilot training class. Granted, I had a huge head start with more flying time logged than many of the instructors, but I never told anyone I was a civilian pilot. I was a civilian instructor pilot. I let them believe I was just that good. (laughs) Upon graduation, I was awarded my dream F-100 Super Sabre, affectionately known as the Hun. Out of 360 graduates, there were only two F-100s offered. With that, I was off to real life and death combat in Vietnam. So you kept it a secret that you were a civilian. Like how many hours did you have? Well, see, I wanted to go to the Air Force pilot training. I can go back to that day that I stood there in, at March Air Force Base looking up at that fighter pilot. You know, he was a god from a different place. And here, after all those the, the, the interim years, I was going to be able to do that. Now, I always made a joke that I always thought if you want to be a real Air Force fighter pilot, you had to go to Luke Air Force Base, and you had to, you had to train in the hunt. It was a difficult airplane to fly. It had some really strange things about the airplane. But that was more of a challenge. I says, if you want to be a real fighter pilot, you got to go through Luke Gunnery School, get in the F-100. And so I talked about that during my pilot training days. Yeah, I was bragging. I said, I'm going to get an F-100. And I said, oh, bullshit, Rutan. I said, they haven't given an undergraduate pilot training right out of training to go directly to fly this really weird airplane. I said, that's all right. I said, uh, all I have to have is one because I'm going to graduate out of 360 <laughs> pilots in five different bases. I was number one. Well, you, you talk about a heads up. I had to bite my, bite my tongue a lot because I was, a, you know, I was a civilian flight instructor. But I had been wanting to go to pilot training all my life. I wanted to go to that training. And, and I didn't want anybody giving any shortcuts or bragging about, hey, I'm already a pilot. And the old, the old habit is, it says, that's a lollipop that I've been wanting to lick for a long time, and I want to look, and I want to lick every darn bit of it. Now, it came to the point when you graduate, the class standings, and this is kind of more or less a metaphor, but they have all the assignments written on the on the blackboard, see, and then there's a curtain, and they come up and they say, okay, who's number one in the class? And they open up the curtain, and there's all the all the assignments. Uh, and I looked up there, and much to my shock, there was two F-100s. Now, I'd been bragging about it. Everybody says, ah, oh, bullshit, there's no, there's no way. But it opened up. They were surprised. But the most surprised person in that whole room was me. <laughs> I had no idea that it would be there. 
And um, I walked up just like, yeah, I knew it all the time. <laughs> BS, I didn't know it. Squat all the time. And, uh, of course, then we went to gunnery school and from there on to Vietnam. So when you were coming through as a, as a pilot, a civilian pilot instructor, like how many hours of flying did you have? Well, uh, this, this is a guess. I probably had a couple thousand hours. So Dave, Burke, how much of an advantage is that oh, going through pilot training when you have a couple thousand hours worth of flight? Well, it was a flight instructor thing too. See, I was, I, I sold it on the day, I sold it on the day that it was 16, my 16th birthday. Uh, my mom drove me out and I sold it in a little Cessna 140 and then I, uh, uh, she took me down to the DMV and I did my driver's test and then I could drive my mom home for the first time. So I was, <laughs> so I was a, a pilot before. And then your 17th birthday, the day that you needed to be to be a private pilot that I could carry passengers and so forth. And then at 18 years old, uh, it could be a commercial pilot and um, flight instructor. <laughs> so Dave, what's the assessment? You have 2,000 hours yeah. worth of pilot time and you're going through pilot training. That's definitely gonna help. <laughs> but in, in, in Dick's defense, that can, that can cut both ways. And when I was in flight school, the kids, now nobody, nobody hit it. You, know, you couldn't hide it, I think, when I was going through. If you had flight time, everybody knew it. Some of the best students had experience, but some of the worst students were the ones that had experience too. So I think you you obviously had to keep that to yourself, and and uh, you have to not reveal your bad habits or your habits that you have brought as an aviator, and you got to pretend like it's all new. So having flight experience mostly helps, but it's I saw kids struggle a lot because they didn't want to learn a new way of doing it. So a few guys that had flight time uh, didn't get through the program particularly because they were unwilling to adapt to a new way of doing it. Yeah. It sounds like you didn't have that Dave, problem. Dave, you're exactly right <laughs> because and I had to be very careful of that. But it, it wasn't the fact that I was, uh, was going to be uh, like the civilians do it better or something. But I was just, I noticed that I was just amazed about how different things were. It's all proceduralized. Uh, like in military pilot training, uh, you'd, you'd to, to enter the pattern is exactly flight. There's a bridge you'd have to overfly, and then there was a, there was a uh, how, farmer's pump house on his thing, and then you turn downwind, and it was all proceduralized. You know, brace, talk, trim, turn. Very, very regimented, see, very regimented. And it was amazing. I thought, you know, if somebody, if that farmer goes out there and tears down that pump house, none of these guys could get back. <laughs> it's just a procedure. And but that's that's the way it was, but the thing was that I I sat there I remembered as a as a little kid sitting there in Dinuba picking grapes or something and looking up and see those contrails, a single contrail so high that I could not see what was making them, and I looked up at that thing and never forget I says damn I got it you know, there's nothing else I got to do I mean the desire to be at the pointy end of that contrail uh, was overwhelming. Here again, the, mo the motivation. And there it was, two sabers up for grabs, and you got one of them. I got one. Um, I'm going to fast forward a little bit in the book here. You say, my assignment to Vietnam as a combat fighter pilot was typical. After completing advanced gunnery school at Luke Air Force Base in Phoenix, Arizona, the, this newly minted jet fighter pilot attended Air Force Survival School at Fairchild Air Force Bo Base in Spokane, Washington. It was February, dead of winter. I would be stationed in the jungle tropics, but was being trained to survive in waist-deep snow. 
On our ride to Vietnam, we made a short stop at Clark Air Force Base in hot and sticky Philippines where we received specific jungle survival training. This environment was definitely more representative of what we would have to face in the jungles of Vietnam. Instead of having to build a shelter in the snow, we learned how to catch, kill, and eat boa constrictors. Arriving in Vietnam, I had to burn, bum a ride from Saigon in a C-130 flying 300 miles north to Phu Cat where the 35th Tactical Fighter Wing was located. In August of 1967, I was assigned the 416th Squadron as a newbie fighter pilot to get checked out in combat. In South Vietnam, most of the action was air to ground in support of the troops, in support of the ground troops. Being a newbie, I was always the tail end Charlie at the end of the four ship formation. We would check in with the forward air controller, a guy in a little Cessna, and he would fire a smoke rocket into the jungle. We would hit his smoke with our four 500-pound Mark 82 bombs and then return to base. I seldom saw any ground fire coming my way. So that's kind of your introduction. You get over there, you're doing these missions. Um, And then this happens. You say, finally, the day I had been anticipating my entire life arrived. How would I react to being shot at directly? My target this day was a bunker complex, and the goal was to drop napalm into the tunnels. I flew at low altitude, assumed a shallow dive angle, and snuggled up close to the enemy tunnels to hit the target. As I rolled in just off to to the right of my bunker target, a 50 caliber AAA opened up, firing bright tracers. The tracer stream was aimed directly at me, and they were close. Someone down there was trying to kill me, specifically. This is the moment that would define me as a warrior or as a coward. In 1803, President Jefferson sent Lewis and Clark on the three-year Corps of Discovery to open up the West. Upon their return, Captain Meriwether Lewis told the president, the greatest exhilaration a man, exhilaration a man can feel is being shot at and missed. As that long stream of trapers, tracers zipped past my canopy, my first thought was not to turn away or hide between my knees or to cry for my mother. It was exactly the opposite. My first reaction was the audacity of that son of a bitch to shoot at me. Generally, the next thing you do will get you killed. Resetting the sight from the bombs to guns, I rolled hard right and headed in to destroy that bastard. Observing this, my flight lead screamed, Rutan, get the hell out of here there. I argued, but sir, he shot at me. He repeated, Rutan, get the hell out of there and probably saved my foolish amateur ass. Captain Lewis was right. The exhilaration was overwhelming and extremely addictive. At last, I had found my answer to how those World War II bomber crews could go out again and again. I, too, could do it. I was a combat warrior. I loved it. I welcomed it. I needed more, much more. As my combat career progressed, I was described by some as aggressive among the aggressive. I had not come to Vietnam to drop bombs on the top of trees. As with most hotshot fighter pilots, I came to kick some ass, win, and then go home. <laughs> That's pretty good introduction to combat. It sure was. <clears throat> but then it answered a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. But it also found, uh, it generated something else. I don't know if I talked about that, about I call the, uh, uh, there's an adrenaline gland that most people have. <laughs> 
and I call it a combat gland, and I think it's right here on the right side of my neck someplace. <laughs> now, what happens, it, it's only active if somebody shoots at you, and then it gets active. And what it pumps into your psychic, into your system, is the most, uh, well, it's extremely addictive <laughs> and euphoric, addictive and euphoric. And it's like uh, an addiction, a drug addiction. Well, maybe it is a metaphor again. <laughs> but you need to have more and more. And then I found out about Misty, mm -hmm. by, kind of by accident, that that was part of the, I think that's the only mistake I made in the book. It's the 35th Tech Fighter Wing. It's actually the 37th, but whatever. <laughs> but anyway, there was this little little detachment, of a, a very small a very small group of people in a very highly classified area and doing some really shut-out stuff. And I thought, that's what I came here for. <laughs> yeah, you, you write about here, the, about, the, about the Misties. The, the, Misty, the Misties flew the two-seat jet trainer version of the F-100. Each plane carried two fighter pilots. One in the front was the mission commander, and the one in the back was the forward air controller. To keep each honest, those roles alternated. They flew low and fast over the panhandle of North Vietnam, Vietnam and Laos. Single fighters armed with only a few hundred rounds for the 20 millimeter can, cannons and 14 white smoke marking rockets. To be able to see them through the camouflage, they had to get right down in amongst them. So the loss rate was high. The first Misty commander, Major Bud Day, who we heard from already today, was shot down early in the operation and spent more than six years as a POW. With air refueling support from the KC-135 tankers over the Gulf of Tonkin, Misty missions were long, four to six hours, and laced with plenty of action. Owing to high risks, the Misty unit was composed of only volunteers, and each tour of duty was short, only 120 days. A high percentage of those who did more than one tour were shot down. Each Misty sortie was assigned flights of F-105 Thunder Chiefs or F-4 Phantom Fighter Bombers. If they had a really hot target, they could scramble gunfighters off the alert pad at Da Nang to come north and work with them. Most high-value targets in the north were well defended with intense AAA. Once a target was determined, the Misties orbited just out of gun range and waited for the fighter bombers to join. It took a few minutes in the orbit to brief everyone on the target, and that gave the gunners plenty of time to pump up adrenaline and exercise their trigger fingers. The Misty had to mark the target with a white smoke rocket and was the first one down the chute. The gunners knew the drill as well. As the Misties rolled in, inverted, and pulled the nose down toward the target, every gun would open up. Within seconds, as tracers flashed by their canopies, they lined up to fire the smoke-marking rocket. It was always one hell of a rush, a real e-ticket ride. Now this was more like it. This was real combat. This was what I came to Vietnam to do. I had to become a Misty. How did I do it? First of all, Misties are volunteer. Okay, volunteers. Okay, okay. So I volunteer. So in January of 1968, my life changed dramatically. I was a Misty and on my way to the action in North Vietnam. No more making toothpicks out of jungle trees or upsetting monkey colonies. My new world revolved around heavy AAA flak, truck parks, burning oil fuel dumps, storage bunkers, and stopping the flow of war material along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. This was what I was here for. 
<laughs> God, I loved it. <laughs> yeah, so they so you only had 120. That's the standard tour was 120 days. 120 days in Misty, right? And the the you're going out on these operations. What's the chances you're going out on a Misty operation? What's the chances you're going to receive enemy fire? Every time. 100%. 100%. Uh, the Misty Day, well, we could only do three Misty missions in a row, three of them. And then you were totally spent, beat. When you say in a row, you mean three days in a row? Three days in a row. Three. And these are four to six hours apiece? Four to six hours. However, you'd wake up, you'd wake up three or four hours ahead of time because you had a long intelligence briefing. What, what was going on up there? Uh, what were the other Misty's uh, reporting, truck parks, uh, barge traffic, burning trucks, whatever. We need to be really up to speed before you went up there and took over. So there was a long, there was a long, um, a long intelligence briefing. And then you go out to the airplane, it's still dark. And you get in the F-100, and you taxi out, and usually in Vietnam it's, uh, it's kind of semi-foggy, maybe a little drizzle, kind of an eerie thing. And just before dawn at Phuket, every morning, a lone F-100 would light his afterburner and off into the Merck to North Vietnam. And every morning I'd hear that, that lone F-100 take off and wonder if, you know, what his day was going to be like. And you'd go up. We had our own tanker because if you're low and fast in a jet, you're burning fuel. And since you have your own tanker off the coast, it's just you, then you could do multiple refuelings and you could still fly your mission. <clears throat> but it was kind of, a, kind of an eerie, solemn thing. Uh, I remember going through the chow hall and the Vietnam combat chow hall. Well, you've experienced that too, powdered, egg, powdered eggs and, and uh, greasy bacon and some, some, some stuff in the morning chow hall. And maybe you would drink it a little bit before the night, the night before, and you're really not feeling all that good. And normally, uh, you wouldn't want to, you wouldn't want to eat it. I would look at that and I'd say, I'd skip it, you know. But I stand there and I look at that food, <clears throat> and I think about how terrible it is. And then somebody, a little voice, would come to you and say, "Dick, you better eat this, because this may be the last meal you're going to have for a long time." And then with that in mind, you sit down there and you woof it down and gag it down as much as you can. But then you know, it's about a 20-minute flight. You go up and you rejoin, rejoin with your tanker just off the coast of North Vietnam and about 20,000 feet, and you take on your load of fuel. And then um, th this, uh, this experience between the time that combat started is you back off of your tanker and you make that turn and you start descending out at 20,000 feet, you're going to penetrate <clears throat> North Vietnamese airspace, and you're going to try to do it at a different place each time, not for the routine. But it was very solemn. The air was generally very smooth, uh, the most serene thing you could ever see. And pretty soon, the, the coast of Vietnam, which is normally kind of farmland and rice paddies and things, uh, most peaceful thing you've ever seen. And as you descended out at 20,000 feet to hit the coast at, at low altitude where our mission was, uh, you check your visor, put your visor down, your chin strap on, make 
doubly sure that all the seat ejection safety pins are pulled out and in your pocket. And then all of your emitters are tied out because you don't want to have a transponder on or a beacon on. And then you set up for the rockets and the mill setting, and then you arm the guns. <clears throat> and then you sit there for a handful of minutes, and you think, God, I wonder what the next six hours of my life is going to be like. And it's kind of an awesome, quiet, solitude feeling. And then you got it pumped up to 550 knots. And then all of a sudden, now this is kind of the, 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 uh, the light level was really low. Because it's just kind of early in the morning. It's just on. We just want to. <clears throat> we want to penetrate at dawn, and we're going to be there till noon. But that first time, you have this eerie feeling, like you know, what is the next six hours of my life going to be like? And then all of a sudden, all that changes because the very first gunner on the shoreline sees you, and every bloody tracer that he fires, you can see it really easy. And then there's a lot of guns on the coastline. And they know the drill when Missy's coming, because uh, we're up here every day. And then the whole sky is, is full of the most beautiful air, uh, fireworks show you've ever seen, this massive, uh, uh, massive display of, uh, of, uh, of tracers. And then you try to find maybe a, uh, they call it, I've heard it called the tear in the curtain to make your way, to make your way in, Bon. But then, but the very first time <laughs> that that first guy opens up at you with the tracers, that little gland in my shoulder I was telling you about, ha, it's on. It is pumping. <laughs> and then it's freaking combat, baby. <laughs> and we're going to be there in mortal combat with my fellow men for the next six hours. And I'll tell you what, this guy loved every damn second of it. <laughs> it was a big challenge. You know, you kind of hide your trucks and stuff and your war materials to kill our soldiers in the South, and we're going to frickin' find it. And I'm going to round up some F-4s and some F-105s to come down there and bomb it and take you out. And if any of you guys even have the thought of, of one of your classic uh, Russian gun sites, six position in a circle, they're all classic Soviet with 37 and 57 millimeter. Uh, and then there's the other one, the 50 cal and the, what is it, 14 zip guns. And, and then there's always the, everybody has an AK-47. And when you fly by, especially in the mornings, all the little villages, they all look like sparklers and they're all shooting, but they're shooting. You know, uh, we're pulling a lot of G, jinking really hard so they can't ever, they can't ever aim at us. And, uh, Every once in a while, we'd pick up a small arms round, uh, very rarely. But then it's the big stuff that would um, you know, blow your whole airplane apart. And then it was fights on. So are you waiting for the, for the fighter bombers to show up before you ingress? Uh, usually there's an air order of battle for the day, a frag, they call it. And we were assigned, uh, like the... Like the other misties, there were some other targets that were identified that we need to go up and make strikes on, on that area. And then uh, just before the day started, they were assigned your assignment 105s, a flight of F-105s, or uh, uh, F-4s, they called the gunfighters with the F-4s out of Da Nang. They were assigned to us. They'd show up and we'd rendezvous, and, and I already have the target, and I'd go down and find it, identify it. And uh, then we'd, uh, we'd brief them. 
you know, the altitude, the escape routes, what the winds were, altimeter setting. You And that's a brief that you're doing on station. Yeah, when we finally join up with them. Would, so would you have to, to, in order to find the target, would you have to go down right. and look? Right. And that was the big problem. That was mainly why we had a forward air control in North Vietnam. Because the guys, uh, the guys that would come up there, they're not up there all the time. And they're high altitude. And uh, a lot of times uh, I find that uh, this is really unfortunate, that they would go and drop bombs on villages and stuff. Especially at night, they'd see a little village and they'd, they'd bomb the villages. And they'd say, in the, the morning misty, they'd come up and the, the controllers would say, hey, they had a, I said, the guys were up here last night and we killed 40 trucks on Brown Route. And we go over there and there wouldn't be any trucks on Brown Route, but there was a village over here burning. Well, we put an end to all that. Uh, so that I think that we directed the airstrikes against legitimate military targets on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And that was good. And sometimes they identified it, and they wouldn't have fighters. So they would identify it, and then they would brief us the next morning, and we'd go up there and find it. Now, if you're up there almost every day for six hours, you get to know that place like the back of your hand, especially the gun sites. Uh, The gun sites' accuracy, it varied dramatically. In fact, there was a guy in, in Laos, he was on the edge of a real rugged karst, and he's a 50 caliber, we call him the kid on the karst. And every morning we'd come up and wake him up, and, and um, as we'd orbit him, he would shoot exactly 180 degrees. And he was the worst shot in the world. And, and I always looked at, now how did he get all that ammo up there on this steep cliff? And why in the world, why in the world would he, would he lead us like 180 degrees around the circle? And when I'd have a new Misty pilot, I says, "Hey, I want to show you what a what a 50 caliber looks like." And so we'd fly up there, and the kid on the car, he would fire, and it wouldn't even come any close, and so forth. But every once in a while, some of these gun crews are really good. Uh, they would get us. Uh, normally, you could see most of the gun sites, and if you could see them, then you could avoid them, or you could uh, not maneuver in such a way. Uh, and we'd we'd name. We'd give them names and stuff. Uh, but basically, if the guy was really good and his camouflage, you know, this is a major Soviet-style gun sight, uh, if they were well camouflaged, and we came by and I had my belly up looking at something else, and they would fire. And the tracer would come those big 57 caliber, uh, 37 caliber uh, things, you know, as big as a beer can, would come by with that with that red tracer comes by really close, and sometimes you can actually hear the shock waves, you know, like the uh, like a baseball bat uh, around your airplane. Then they know that they were really close, and if they were really close and very clever and well camouflaged, we frickin' had to go back and kill them. At least I did. And uh, the one thing, the thing about combat, if somebody is trying to kill you. And like the bombers in World War II, they just have to sit up there and take it. They couldn't retaliate against it. And I thought that was really horrible. But the Misty had the ability that if you were good and you came really close to me, fucker, we're going to come back and take you out. And so I'd roll back, roll back, and there'd be a ring around the gun side. It'd be slowly drifting away. And then I'd pull up just out of their range, and I'd think, <laughs> and they knew what the drill was going to be after that. 
because I'd either go out and get some tankers, but I'd come back. And uh, we scrambled the gunfighters out of Da Nang, or we have a flight of F-105s we could rob from the guys going downtown Hanoi or something. I says, hey, I got a target for you. It's an extremely aggressive, accurate gun sight, and I want to take them out. I want you to take them out for me. <laughs> Quiet. Uh, sometimes the misty would try to try to describe where the gun sight was uh, by talking them into it, so I didn't have to mark them. <laughs> I says, "Okay, guys, you see the Gulf of Tonkin out there? Yeah, we see that. It's a big river called the Cranky River." Okay, follow it up until it has a dogleg beam. You, you see that? He says, okay, right at that place, and you try to talk them a little mm -hmm. road, and right off there there's a field. And if, and if I tell them, sometimes I could talk them into like a, a truck storage area or something, and they could get that. But if I'm trying to, to talk them into it verbally, into a gun sight, they almost never can see it. They say, okay, Missy, this is your target. You frickin' mark them, man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Now what uh, you have to go to what altitude to get a mark on a on a gun sight? Well, we knew what the range of them of them was, and we just climb out of the range of the thirty fifty seven was a little higher, thirty seven was a little lower, uh, and it was really interesting because these these uh, the shells there'd be six position and they'd all, they'd all open up in a long stream of tracers. And they'd, they'd float up, and they get slower and slower and slower. And finally, the tracer would go out, and then you couldn't see them anymore. But then they would start down, I guess, and then they would all self-destruct. Boom, 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 boom. Little puffs of smoke. And we try to stay above that. And that's what, 4,500 feet or something uh, like that? Yeah, four to 5,000 feet, if, if memory serves me right. I and think so that, you're doing your best to fly above that range. Right. Five. When you go to mark a target, do you have to go into that range, or can you mark it from outside? No, that range? no, you <laughs> you got to get in there. Uh, they know what the drill is, and it's up to you to put that white phosphorus smoking uh, right marking rocket right on top of it. And what you want to do is find out what the the drift is. So you put the marking rocket just upwind, and when the white phosphorus goes off, it it, it blooms up, and hopefully it'll, it'll drift over drift over the gun so when my first fighter down the chute, he has a better chance because they can't see him now. And then he could come in and drop his bombs. Uh, but it was, uh, you know, as a, as a, as a kid, you, you, for the first time you climb up on a high dive at a swimming pool <laughs> and you walk out and all of a sudden this 15 foot looks like 15 miles and you look up, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> And it takes all the courage you have to walk out on the edge of the board and jump off for the first time. And everybody's experienced something like that. Uh, it comes up, uh, finally, the Misty's circling them. And they, and they shot, and they missed the Misty. Now, they know what the drill is. And they know that if the first thing they do, if Misty marks them, they're dead. And so all their concentration is is to knock the Misty out of the sky. Uh, and they're all waiting for you. And sometimes you'd have to wait because the fighters weren't available then, and they, uh, they'd have to go out and refuel or whatever. So you're circling them, and uh, they know what the drill is. And as soon as Misty's, as soon as his wings roll up, pass vertical. <laughs> and as soon as you're past vertical and the nose starts down, every damn gunner knows that, it, that they got to kill the kid, they got to kill the Misty. Because if they get marked, they're 
fucked. Now, there's a handful of seconds because uh, there's a thing called lead. If you're flying along, we could always jank and they would have a hard time tracking us and give us the right lead to hit us. But there's about four or five seconds where there's no lead requirement because all I have to do is aim right at the missile because he's coming down the chute right at you. There's no lead, there's mm-hmm. no lead requirements or anything, and there's that handful of seconds. Uh, that so that's re- when you've got your nose at the target and you've got to re- keep it there for four or five seconds to get your rocket off. Yeah, and, and, and there's an overwhelming urge to just throw the rocket down there and get away, <laughs> but then you keep thinking, this is important because how I mark it, how accurately, if I can use the smoke to blind them, I owe that to the fighters that are coming up there too. And so it takes a lot of willpower. When the nose finally comes down, and then they're all shooting, then it's all coming up your way. And, uh, and, and to roll out, pull it down, put the pipper just below the target, and then let it ease up and make sure there's no yaw involved in the airplane and you're not a lot of G, because if you're, having, if you're flying G, the, the angle of attack will change your marking, and, and it's all that. But it's that handful of seconds that it takes you to think, uh, uh, you know, just don't throw this thing out there. It's, a, it's like an eternity. And you pull it up, and then you stabilize it, and then pickle. And one uh, smoke rocket comes out. Now, the bad thing is the escape route. And once you've fired fairly low at a, maybe a 30- or 40-degree dive angle. And what altitude are you at when you, when you fire? Uh, 1,500 feet. Oh. Okay. So. Maybe 1,500, 2,000 You're well feet. within range. Okay. Now, the worst thing you want to do is you fire the, fire the, then you pull off straight ahead over the target. You don't want to do that. So once you fire, you roll the airplane about 130 degrees to the right, and then you pull down into the ground. And and what you want to get is a, is a tracking solution that they have to uh, use some type of skill to be able to hit you uh, tracking. Now, they've only had this one chance <laughs> where they don't have to do any, all they got to do is aim, they don't have to lead you. So you pull to the right and down and roll wings level. Now, you're coming out pretty low, uh, but there's no way they can track you because now there's a big angular velocity and stuff, and you're pulling up. And when you come back around, you want to look at your smoke, and it's either hit my smoke or... Uh, generally, the fighters, uh, three or four fighters that are orbiting, there is absolutely no frickin' idea, <laughs> no confusion, because that whole thing, the, the muzzle flashes, just they almost light up the world. And then, then it's payback time. And the Missy pulls back up, and uh, you say, you know, hit my smoke. And then you pull up around, and then lead rolls in. And now they all concentrate on lead coming because he's got to do the same thing mm-hmm. coming down the chute. Of course, he can drop his bombs a lot higher. I was going to say, can't he drop from yeah, a bigger maybe altitude? Maybe six, six or 8,000 or something like that. So is he out of their range of their weapons? Uh, no. By the time they pull out, they're probably down within their, their lethal range for sure. And now if, if you're flying around and you see the guy roll in, there's no, there's no way you can tell because of the angular velocities and stuff. Uh, the angle's off when he rolls in and drops his bombs. Now, and his stick of bombs come off and he pulls off, 
And then you see in the bombs fall. And then you see these, the gun sight, the muzzle flashes uh, going up at him. And they see them, <laughs> and you see them down there uh, shooting like mad. And then you watch the bombs come and they see the gun sights, the bombs come. <laughs> and then the gratification you get when it hits them dead center. And all of a sudden, the most conflagration of dirt and, and, uh, and nails the gun sights. And then there's, the guns are laying over and all the bunkers are gone and stuff. Uh, sometimes, sometimes they miss. So what we would do, <clears throat> when Lee would roll in, then I would, then I would pull up in the opposite direction and make a fake pass at him. And that was to draw fire away from number two and he's coming down the chute and then we just do a crossing maneuver and you may be able to do the same thing for three coming down to try to, to, try to draw some other fire. And there's a handful of minutes that it's pretty exciting. And in a, in a four to six hour mission, how many how many targets would you go after? Uh, it varied a lot, depending on the weather. Sometimes uh, it's usually a pretty it's usually a pretty uh, pretty high workload. Uh, if you're not if you're you've had your assigned targets. Uh, sometimes all they want to do is drop bombs on a on a road to do a road cut to on the side of a cliff and try to close the uh, try to close the roads. They did a lot of that, thinking they were going to close down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. We go down there in the afternoons. We put in a bunch of strikes and actually have a road slide on a cliff. And I thought, boy, that shut down the Ho Chi Minh Trail for a while. We come back at dawn the next morning, and the road is fixed. It didn't slow them down at all. The other thing that was really fun is that, is that the Navy went out and they mined at some of the rivers, like the Quanke River up there. And, uh, and they were magnetic mines. And when, uh, they were, like when a boat comes by, it would trigger magnet, you know, the magnetism of it, and then it would blow up. Well, these, these mines would sit up there and they'd get more and more and more sensitive. And this, this, this was just fun, I guess. And so the first guy down the river, uh, first guy in that morning, we come real low right down the river, going real fast. And uh, almost every, invariably, we could trigger off some of those mines behind us, you know, just, just to go up and screw with them sometimes. Um, good good over, overview of what you guys were doing up here. Um, I got, again, you, you profile some of these missions in here. Here's one of them where there's a, a down pilot. You say, down in the jungle is one of our own, a fellow fighter pilot, a warrior. He was still free and talking on his survival radio. So this guy got shot down and you hear him talking. Our creed was that if you are free and, and talking, we will never give up on your rescue. The rescue force that morning suffered numerous delays and mismanagement. Before helicopters could be deployed into North Vietnam, permission had to be required from some kid in LBJ's White House. It seemed the permission giver was asleep and no one wanted to wake him, which caused extensive delays at a time when every second was critical. Frustrations abounded on these, on the, for those on the rescue team. I had flown seven and a half hours the day before and would invest another seven and a half hours before this day was over. With nerves ready to snap, this disjointed rescue effort continued and it was already close to noon. My relief, Wells Jackson, Misty 2-1 had just arrived. 
As he was being briefed, a call came from search and rescue headquarters in Saigon, canceling our rescue and instructing us to pull out all forces. I was incensed with this turn of events, but the orders had originated from those much higher on the chain of command than I, a lowly captain. Then it hit me. Since I was the only one who could talk directly to Jack, the down pilot, it was going to be my job to tell him we were giving up and abandoning him to the North Vietnamese for certain torture, imprisonment, and possible death. I was infuriated. What were they thinking? We were American fighting men, and we never give up. Enraged, I demanded to know who gave the order to pull out. Turns out it was a general in Saigon who thought it was too risky and had issued the order to withdraw. I thought since that general made the decision to quit, that general should be the one to tell Scotch-03 that he was to be abandoned. Sleep-deprived and furious, I ignored any sense of military rank protocol and demanded the general tell me the exact words to use when informing Jack that further rescue attempts were being aborted. While we waited for the exact words, I finished briefing my relief, Misty 2-1, and with a heavy heart, left the area knowing we were about to fail one of our own. Back at home base in Phu Cat, it was now close to sunset. I sat slouched in the O-Club, disillusioned that my commanders could violate our most sacred Cree. If you are free and talking, we never give up. Alone and heartbroken, my only company a couple of empty beer bottles, I contemplated my commitment to these high-risk missions. It was then that Wells Jackson, Misty 2-1, burst through the door with a big smile on his face. I had to wonder what the hell he was so happy about. Hey, Rutan, they got scotch out. I could not believe my ears and blurted, what? Jackson continued, yep, scotch was rescued. Seems the general could not come up with the exact words to tell a fellow warrior he was about to be abandoned. Perhaps the general began to realize how such a decision could compromise the long-term morale of all of us who fought and died on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. That particular mission, when they got him out, see, before that, that morning... Uh, well, actually, the day before, uh, we were up there, and there was a flight of F-105s, not under our control, but I could hear him talking that uh, Scotch 3 the number three guy in that f- four-ship of F-105s, they were calling, calling, and uh, there was no answer. So I flew over to the area that they were working, and just by a fluke, uh, by glints, maybe, maybe just a second, I, I spotted the orange and white canopy in the top of the jungle. And as I flew up, pulled up to come back around, it disappeared. And but however, <laughs> I memorized to memorize that spot before I took my eyes off of it again. So I pulled up and I called and called. There was no answer. And so then I pulled up and I did a dive bomb pass where I could talked to him overhead, diving right straight at him at that point. And I called Scotch, and he came back, and he could hear me, and he could talk. Now, there was just a handful of seconds that we could exchange, uh, exchange information. Where are you? I mean, are you okay? He said, no, I have a, I have a, I called, he said, I have a broken back, and I can't move. Come and get me. 
Now, the sun was just going down, and there wasn't enough time to generate a rescue force. And so Steve Amdor, another fellow Missy, and I, we'd already done a six-and-a-half-hour mission. And we put Scotch asleep that night and told him, we'll be back at dawn to get you. And we went back to Da Nang and landed and tried to organize a rescue force that morning. And then we took off, had about three hours of sleep, we took off. And just right at dawn the next morning, I came across that thing with my afterburner going and uh, called him and there was no answer. So I pulled up back around and I dove at that spot. And then I could ask a question, he can give me the answer, and then we'd pull off and we'd go away. So that's how we were going to communicate with him. Okay, this was, this was dawn, this faithful day. It was long and disjointed rescue. In fact, they'd shot up two helicopters. The helicopter would come in and hover, and they found him that night. They located him, and they set up a flak trap because they knew we were coming back. And every time that one of the helicopters would come into a hover, Jolly Green and HH-3 uh, Air Force helicopter, they would shoot and uh, shoot them up pretty bad. And they did that to two of them, and they got away. There was an A-1 Sky Raider that was also working the rescue that morning, and uh, he got shot down, and he, uh, for some reason, he tried to dead stick it into the Ben High River, and he was killed. So we lost two helicopters, and we had one A-1 shot down, and the pilot was killed. Uh, it, the whole morning was disjointed because they had B-52 strikes coming in, and they pulled off our rescue forces numerous times to let these big bombers. You know, here these guys are 30,000 feet. They drop their bombs before they even go feet dry <laughs> and to try to, you know, hit some targets uh, that were near where we were working. So we got pulled off back and forth. So finally, uh, the Jollies, the Jolly Grains were trying to, to, to come across the border into North Vietnam, and they couldn't get approval. And I said something that was, that was probably not very, uh, I, said, I said something that wasn't very complimentary about these guys that wouldn't come in and get my guy which turned out, then I learned about the fact they couldn't because of some snot-nosed kid in LBJ's White House that had to approve it, and nobody wanted to wake him up. And boy, then the frustration level was just uh, really high. You know, there's targets that we'd have, but when, when you're out there and you're trying to find and rescue one of your own, then, then that's totally different, your motivation different. I kept thinking, God, they could be me down there. And so there was a guy named Don uh, Ingen in an HH3. Now, this is, this is after the time that I says, uh, you know, I briefed him, and then I says, tell me the exact words. You know, if he's going to, if he made a decision to leave this guy to die, well, then, damn it, let him tell me the words. It's, I mean, you made the decision. You come up with the words to tell him, then it dawned on me, hey, I'm the only guy that can talk to him. I'm going to have to tell him that I thought, screw him. I'm not going to come up with my words. Let the general's words. And then I left with a heavy heart, like we said. And um, as it turned out, Wells came up, and they, the general <laughs> changed his mind. And only this time, when Engen came in and hovered, they put um, uh, 
the guy's name was uh, the PJ. He had been in country three days, I think. He was a two-striper uh, PJ that he was going to be down on the ground. And uh, he was there just long enough to hear all the horror stories about being on the ground in North Vietnam. And then he came into a hover, and he dropped the PJ down through the jungle to try to find Scott 03. And uh, I guess he roamed around, and it's all on tape, it's an incredible tape. And Wells Jackson is talking about a gun site over there that's trying to lob 37 millimeter into the rescue area. And uh, in Wells' back seat, he has a, a photographer that went along with him that day, and the guy was six hours, <laughs> and he was uh, throwing up continuously. And, and over the interphone, you could hear the, the kid throwing up. But he came into a hover, anyway, um, Callie, Sergeant Herman Callie, yeah. That's the PJ? It's the PJ, it's on the ground. And uh, he finally found, he roamed around and found him. And then now he had the vector of the Jolly Green Ore. Now it's all very quiet, there's no ground fire or anything. He's hanging, and the, he says forward, forward, forward. He says, okay, that's good, drop the, drop the penetrator. It's a long cable with a special, peep. Uh, you know what it is, a penetrator device, kind of like a bullet that can go down through the jungle. And it goes down, and uh, Sergeant Talley, or Airman Talley puts the Scott 03 on the, on the penetrator. And then everything's quiet. You know, the guy's sitting there in a nice hover. Ingen. Ingen is a Coast Guard exchange pilot. It's not an Air Force pilot. Coast Guard pilot. And uh, he said, okay. And then Tally on the ground has a little radio, and he says, okay, I got him. Uh, you know, pull me up. And then there's a handful of seconds, and you can just imagine he's sitting there in a hover, and the cable's coming up oh so slowly. And I don't know how high it was. It may have been... 30, 40, maybe 50 feet in the sky. And then they activated the trap. Now they knew this time that the Jolly wasn't going anyplace. He was, he was hooked, you know. The other guys weren't hooked, they just get away. But they knew that the Jolly, they had the choice of either cutting the cable and leaving. And, uh, and Engen said later, I said, guy, how could you sit there under that withering fire? And he says, there was no way I would ever leave one my PJ on the ground. God, I mean, I mean, that was just his mindset. What an incredible person. And this cable come up, and, and Tally would squeeze the mic button on his little radio, and he's been screaming, ground fire, ground fire, take it out, take it out, ground fire. And in the background, you can hear intense automatic weapons fire. And Tally told it later. He looked up at the, at the jolly, and it was being from all different directions, being shot to crap. I mean, the windshield was being blown out. There was hydraulic fluid leaking. The, one of the landing gear had just plopped out, and there was punctures of fuel pouring down and pieces falling down off the airplane. And uh, later on, I asked Tally, I says, I says, what a grave thing, you know, to, to save the helicopter, you know, you'd sacrifice yourself to do that. And he looked at me, <laughs> you know, typical warrior, this kid. He looked at me and says, oh, no, no, sir, it wasn't that at all. He says, I looked up, and I didn't want the damn thing falling on me. <laughs> anyway, Engen, uh, he was awarded the, uh, the Air Force Cross, but it should have been a Medal of Honor. And even today, I'm still trying to work that out, especially since I found out in the entire Vietnam War that all the contributions that the, that the Marines 
I'm sorry, not the Marine, but the Coast Guard. This guy was a Coast Guard exchange pilot. In that whole war, and all the participation by the Coast Guard in that war, there was not one Medal of Honor winner. And I thought, that's really a shame. And even today, I'm signed to write letters and, and trying to get that thing upgraded, because I think it would be important that, that the contribution of the Coast Guard should be recognized by one of their heroes and uh, England to do that. Anyway, they, they got him above the jungle canopy, and then he translated away, and it was just a, a few miles. And he just crossed the Benhai River. Uh, to, there was a medevac there called the Rock Pile, and they landed, and that, I don't think that Jolly ever flew again. It, it was shot up so bad. Man. <clears throat> um, uh, we got another situation. Uh, in the book and in this one you're flying and there's another plane another saber that's on fire and there's a there's a general you don't know this at the time but there's actually a general in the in the front seat yeah this is a it's another RF4C you know same thing that uh, Lee was flying except that was a reconnaissance word it was a recce version mm. of the of the Phantom and so this guy, um, their their call sign is is strobe one zero, and so you're flying next to them. You see that they're on fire, and you you tell them, hey, you're you're on fire, and go into the book here. It says strobe one zero acknowledged our call that he was on fire and stated we're bailing out. This should have been a standard ejection. They were flying at 10,000 feet straight and level at an ideal speed of about 230 knots. Everything was set for routine ejection and water rescue. Which is interesting that you're talking about a routine ejection and water rescue. <laughs> that, that shows your mentality. I had never seen an, object, an ejection up close. The notoriously complicated F4 Martin Baker seat known as the backbreaker would be something to witness. I eased the old Hun to route formation about 30 feet out on his left wing and waited for what seemed an eternity. Nothing happened. Almost two minutes dragged by before the rear seat finally ejected. Later on, I asked the backseater what had taken so long. They knew they were on fire. He said that they had taken out the checklist and reviewed the ejection procedures. The general did not want to eject. They argued about the position of the command ejection handle in the rear cockpit. The major, upholding his duties, wanted it in the command eject position where the guy in the back ejects the front seat pilot. However, the general insisted that it be left in the off position, thereby making each seat a single initiated ejection. The major reluctantly sat up straight, grabbed the yellow handle between his legs and pulled, giving the general, leaving the general to his fate. From my vantage point, the rear cockpit ejection was textbook and I remember it vividly. The aft canopy opened and separated cleanly, clearing the tail by at least 20 feet. The seat started up the rails. As the bottom of the seat cleared the cockpit, the rocket motor ignited, burned for 1.2 seconds, and the seat went straight up, very stable. When the rocket stopped, the small drogue parachute released and the seat rotated backward 90 degrees as it cleared the tail. Looking over my right shoulder, I could see the main C9 parachute canopy had also deployed. As it started to open, the seat separated from the backseat pilot and kept right on going. With the canopy fully open, the pilot swung back underneath. I thought the whole thing was neat as hell until I looked back at the stricken aircraft. What I was about to witness was chilling. 
It would leave an indelible imprint which remains surreal and unforgettable to this day. I was horrified to see the front cockpit totally engulfed in fire. I saw an occasional flash from a white helmet that was barely visible through the smoke and flames. The general was sitting straight up as before, but motionless. He seemed oblivious to his circumstances. Huge flames that resembled giant blowtorches streamed from the rubber pedal, rudder pedal area at his feet through the cockpit around him and out through the now open rear cockpit. The fire had filled the Phantom's interior and produced a dense black smoke trail that obscured the tail. Strangely, the aircraft flew on. Terrified, I thought the general must not be aware of the fire, so I began to holler over the radio, strobe one zero, bail out, bail out. I continued to scream desperately, but the general just sat there doing nothing. The wings remained level and the aircraft now began a shallow descent. My God, I screamed, why doesn't he eject? How can he just sit there? What the hell is wrong? Then I figured it out, maybe he couldn't hear me. I was too far away, 30 feet, so I drove the Hun right up next to the burning cockpit and screamed again, strobe one zero, bail out, bail out. Then Harland yelled, oh my God, look at it burn. Frustrated and half in shock at what had just transpired not 10 feet from us, we moved in closer. So close the air pressure between the two aircraft caused the fiery phantom to roll up into a right bank. As I pulled back, the F-4 turned 90 degrees, rolled back wings level and pointed itself directly at the beach in a slightly steeper descent. By then we could no longer see the general's white helmet, only a blackened charred canopy. The paint on the entire nose was burned and blistered. There were a couple of small explosions in the nose area that blew some of the panels loose and sent other pieces flying off the plane. The entire front end was a charcoal-colored mass. The orange and yellow flames subsided, their dense smoke streaming backward over the fuselage. For some unfathomable reason, I continued to call Strobe One Zero, begging him to get out, even though it was obviously futile. We stayed close on his wing, and at 500 feet, the old Phantom gave one last gasp, pitched up a little, then dove straight into the beach and exploded. I just couldn't let go. Harlan screamed, God damn it, Dick, pull up. I know Harlan's stern direction was the wake-up call that saved us. I might very well have crashed right beside Strobe. I pulled up hard, barely missing some small trees behind the beach, pulling off to the left, and in a choking voice, I told Waterboy, Strobe one zero just impacted on the beach. Moments later, Waterboy asked whether there was any chance of survival. My plaintive reply was, negative survival, negative survival. Now there's a, uh, you have to kind of go and debrief this situation and there was a tape. There's a tape of this whole thing? There was. And, and there's something that you talk about in here. You, there's something that you edited out of the tape. Was it some words between you and the general? What was it? Uh, well, let, me, let me back up a second. Uh, that was, remember, the, the Nixon, he had an 18-minute gap. Mm-hmm. I had an 18-second gap. Uh, first of all, these were, these were extremely high-risk missions that these guys flew, the recce missions. They were at 500 feet, and they were straight and level. And uh, they would come up and we would check in, and they had their certain coordinates for departure and their routes and stuff. 
And the MISTI, they would check in with us, and then we would um, help them identify it. Sometimes they needed some help identifying stuff. And so I would stay up above these guys and watch them, watch them with their, you know, their photo run, straight and level, just getting shot up like mad. Flying straight and level up there, it's almost the kiss of death. At 500 feet. Yeah, you just never want to do that up there, to fly straight and level. I would never fly straight and level. The Mysteries had four or five Gs on us all the time, jinking like mad. So nobody could really uh, predict where we were going to be. That's the only thing that we could survive at all. But the one thing that I did know is that these were extremely high-risk missions in North, into North Vietnam by the reconnaissance guys, and they were flown by lieutenants and captains, just like me. Uh, the company grade or the field grade and uh, would n- never be a general officer. So uh, I had just come off the tanker heading into North Vietnam, and I heard the call that we we'd taken a hit just north of north of uh, Quezon, I think, and we're coming out feet wet, to get feet wet. And so I says, wow, okay, well, I'm just coming out, and they're coming they're coming out, and we're coming back in. So I joined up with them. Now, my perception was that I was talking to the front seater, and the front seater was a, was a captain just like me, right? I had no idea it was a dental officer. I had no idea that I was talking to a CNI major, the major that's supposed to take care of this general. Uh, in the back seat. So my conversation, my perception was that I was talking to a fellow captain that was sitting in the front cockpit, and that wasn't the case. So we joined up with him and looked him over. He looked pretty good, uh, and we had to get real close up underneath him. We could see there was a little bit of fire going on up in the camera bay. Uh, nothing, nothing bad. Uh, they were complaining about losing, uh, I think they lost a utility hydraulic system, <clears throat> and it was getting really hot. But uh, that was all. And, and I think the, the general was up in the North Vietnam where he bloody well shouldn't have been. But it was his last mission. It was his champagne flight. He was going to go home. And he wanted, um, they told me that he could get an extra air medal if he flew into North Vietnam, which he wasn't supposed to. So this general, Bob Worley, fighter pilot, a good, really a good guy. He wanted to go up there and on his last mission and, and bring back some good information, good photography and stuff. Uh, and so all of a sudden, well, we joined up with him. He was about, uh, I don't know, 10 miles feet wet, heading south towards Da Nang. And we saw the little fire. And I was having a conversation with a fellow captain, not knowing that it was a general. And uh, so we told them that they were on fire or had a fire up in the nose. And we pulled off, like you said, like you read in the book, into route formation right on his wing. And they took a lot longer than I thought <laughs> to go ahead. And I found out later that they were arguing about it. Now, the general said then, I don't think the general really knew that there was, that there was anything really bad enough that they, should, that they should eject. That's why the argument was. Uh, and I, I'm sure that he says, okay, I'm going to get rid of this guy in the back, and I'm going to fly this airplane back and save it because, you know, if I lose the airplane and they find out I was screwing around in North Vietnam, they're going to really frown at me. And I think that was his motivation, uh, to get rid of the guy in the back, and then he could be the hero and fly the airplane back, which wasn't the case. The problem on the F-4 Phantom was you can't get rid of the canopy. 
it has a pneumatic plunger that has to push the leading edge up or else the, the wind, the normal wind speed clamps clamps it down. You just can't unlock it because it won't go anyplace. You have to have these plungers. And I think when they got hit in the nose, that plunger was damaged. And so he didn't know it at the time, but the only way he could live was to get the airplane back because this injection system, without the canopy gone, you can't eject through it. It's one of the Martin Baker things. So that was in his, that was in his mind. So when they finally decided to go ahead and eject, uh, the fire hit him and he wasn't, I'm sure he wasn't ready for that. Now, my conversation the whole time was with the, that guy in the white helmet in that fire. That's, that was the conversation we had. Had no idea that the guy I was talking to was hanging in a parachute a couple miles behind us. Uh, so that was my mindset. But I often thought about what I was saying, what I was seeing, and what my reaction to that was. Uh, uh, it, it says, why did, I, why did I say, well, maybe he can't hear me? You know, you know how absurd this is. Hey, hey, Dick, hey, I didn't notice this, this fire that the whole cockpit was on fire. I'm sure glad you told me about that. Now I'm just going to go ahead and, and eject. Hey, appreciate you telling me that I'm freaking on fire and the cockpit's full. So you're sitting there and you got to do something. I just, and so I, I called him, you know, strolling one, bail out, bail out, screaming at him to bail out. And... And then I says, well, maybe you can't hear me. I mean, how stupid is that? What do you mean? The difference between 30 feet that he can hear me on a UHF radio that will transmit for hundreds of miles? I mean, it's just absurd, that, you know, the psychology of that and what hits you all of a sudden. And then I drove in so hard that I, uh, the air pressure turned him. Otherwise, he would have, been, he would have crashed in the, you know, the Gulf of Tonga. And this way, he crashed right on the beach. And, uh, and not wanting to let go, and almost crashing right beside him. Uh, you know, we, we pulled up, and the water boy was the, uh, the controlling agency, the one that controls us in and out of the pack, and BDA and organizes fighter strikes and stuff. That was our controller. And then all of a sudden, since he blew up, now I'd seen a lot of airplanes crash. And it wasn't unusual to see another airplane, you know, a combat loss. I'd seen those before. And it, and it was always like, okay, well, okay, another one, another combat loss, and we write it off, and the war goes on. But as we were pulling up off to the left, they wanted to know survival, and I said negative survival. And then all of a sudden, there was a whole bunch of interest in this crash site. Uh, they wanted uh, security up there, and they wanted to get medevacs, and they're going to deploy a whole bunch of stuff. And I thought, what the hell is going on? That's not strange. Airplane crashes, combat loss, war goes on. So we went back, we went back and found the uh, the backseater hanging in the parachute. Only this time, the wind was really strong in the Gulf of Tonkin, and then it was really rough. Now we're down in South Vietnam, south of the border. So the sand pan that was coming out was coming out from the south. And it was a motorized sand pan, and it was really rough, and he was bouncing. So this is now a race between? Well, the guy's hanging in the parachute. And uh, see, normally, 
you can get killed on somebody out there screwing around. They don't know what to do. Now, everybody's trained. The jolly comes in and they know what to do and how to take care of the parachute. You know, all those issues you need to get, to get you out of the water into a rescue craft. Uh, and then there's certain training. Dave, you've been through all that many times too. So all of a sudden we see this, this motorized junk and we, looked, we look at it and it's, uh, what's a sand pan, not a junk? motorized and he's booking it he's going and he can see the guy hanging in the parachute and he's going out there so we go by and it has the south vietnamese flag on it that didn't mean <laughs> in that war that doesn't mean square root of foxtrot alpha what the flag is <laughs> and so harlan that i talk about he was in the front seat he was my student that day and i was the instructor in the back during this whole thing and so i look at him and i says well we can't let that guy get back to the pilot and I, I said uh, okay we'll go ahead and we'll go ahead and kill him and so Harlan armed a gun and he came back as we're turning on final I'm thinking you know maybe he is a South Vietnamese and why don't we just scare him so we did a low pass by and he just kept going and uh, so it says okay well he's got the message and now we'll just go ahead and shoot him and as we turned final the second time I had second thoughts, and I says, well, Harlan, why don't we put some 20-millimeter right across his bow? Uh, okay, so Harlan did. He rolled in, and he put a stick of, uh, you know, you know run a strafe across his bow. Now, it was really neat. He was going out. I said, no, no, no. The strafe went, went right in front of him, and then he goes, whoop, boom, 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 boom. <laughs> And then he beat, fact, beat feet back to the store, and then the Jolly Green finally came and, and rescued him after that. Now, we flew back to Phuket. No, I went about another three-hour mission that day, and I didn't get back until noon. And uh, so we pulled into Phuket, and I noticed that there was every colonel in the whole base was there to meet us. And I told Harlan, I says, hey, I says, I don't know what we did, but it must have been a major fuck-up. And I couldn't remember that I'd done anything really bad. But what were these damn colonels here for? And so we opened the canopy, and the first colonel up the stairs says, what are you doing here? You're, you're supposed to be in Saigon. You're supposed to be in Saigon. What are you landing? We're not supposed to land here. It's just all mad at me. And, I, and then I told Harlan over the interphone, I says, Harlan, I don't know what it is, but it's worse than what I thought. <laughs> And then the, the guy finally found out that, uh, that realized, he says, oh, you don't know who was on that airplane, do you? I thought, no, wrecky guy, fellow captain. That, you know, I said, that's really a shame. But shit, I've seen a lot of stuff. And he says, oh, my God, you didn't know that it was General Worley in that airplane. Now everything all made sense. And he says, uh, and I says, oh, yeah, I, by the way, I got it all on tape. Because when he hollered Mayday, I started the little tape recorder that we jerry-rigged. We bought it at the, the hardware store, and, I've, and I jerry-rigged a plug that whatever I went into my headset that I could record it on little cassettes. That was just kind of my idea. <clears throat> and so I handed it to him, and the colonel took it and said, you got it all on tape? Wow. And he was holding it. He was holding this. And then he didn't know what to do with it, so he gave it back to me. Thank goodness. <laughs> And he says, go get a Class B uniform on. There's going to be a T-39 scat back to bring you down. There's some generals that want to talk to you down in Saigon. Holy frick. 
the last thing in the world that this little upcountry pogue pilot wanted to do was hanging around with four-star generals. Uh, it's, it's, How many generals had you talked to at this point in your I'm, deployment to I'm, Vietnam? I'm in general, shoot, I'm a little pogue captain, see. <laughs> so anyway, the T-39 come up and picked us up, and on our way down to Saigon, I thought, you know, I'd listen to this tape, and so I played it. And there was something in there that was extremely inappropriate. Just language-wise? No, no. Uh, Harlan is dead, and I'll take that, what I said, to the grave. <laughs> Fair and enough. So, and so I, re I, you know, I recorded it over it, and it was exactly 18 seconds long, just like Nixon's 18-minute <laughs> tape. And it's, it's a damn good thing, too, that I, re that I took that out of there because every one of those damn generals wanted his own personal private briefing. And so I had to play it over and over and over again, and I'm thinking, God, I'm sure glad I erased that. <laughs> but it was, a, it was a shame, too. Mm -hmm. uh, along with that, there was his, he had two daughters, uh, General Worley, good guy, fighter pilot. And they called me some years later, and they wanted to go down, and they wanted to go to Vietnam where, where their father had died. And nobody could tell them where it was, the exact location. But I thought, these two ladies, they need to go to, the, to an exact spot out there to build a memorial and, and have closure right where their dad died. Now, I, I tried to drag it out of my memory and describe exactly, you know, turn left here, and there's a little town called Phuc Noi, and you go to the beach, and you turn left, and you go 100 yards, and that's where he crashed. Well, as it turned out, it was 100 yards the other direction. But it, but it didn't matter because they went there, and they sent me a picture of a memorial, and they were hugging each other, and it was, a, it was kind of a closure. It was a nice thing for them. Now, you got another, uh, another thing that you write about in the book. You write about your friend Howie, Howard K. Williams. What, what happened with him, and what was this, this mystery phone call that you got? Can you talk us through that? Yeah, uh, uh, the Misties. We were we were kind of a unique group. We were doing some highly classified stuff, and we were separated from most of the in-country fighter pilots that flew those um, toothpick monkey deaf, <laughs> making monkeys deaf missions <laughs> in South Vietnam. And, and sometimes we'd fly those missions and there was troops in contact and there was a lot going on. And we'd go in there, roll in, drop my bombs and leave. And I'd think, hey, there's a combat down there. You know, I wanted to be part of it. What happened? I mean, who's in combat? I want to know the details of that. And I just didn't want to climb, you know, uh, fly back my airplane not knowing about it. That's why I wanted to go to Misty. And, and I found out about Misty, and I says, hey, I want to go there, and it's a volunteer thing. And the guy says, no, one of the requirements is you have to be a flight lead. And, it, and I says, okay, uh, well, well, I want to go to Misty. I kept bugging my commander, the squadron commander. And he says, no, damn it, Rutan, you're a, you know, a newbie pilot here, and you'll be six or eight months, four to six months before you can even think about checking out as a uh, flight lead. So I kept bugging him and bugging him and bugging him, and he finally just got pissed off, and he says, okay, goddammit, I'll give you a flight lead check, which I was no more qualified or, or experienced or anything. And so I went out, and I uh, didn't do a very good job as a flight lead. Uh, 
In fact, I think I got hit on that. An, an in-country, yeah, an in-country hit, which are very rare, getting hit from in-country. The biggest thing they have would maybe be a 50 caliber, and they hit it in the gun bay. And, it, and as an example, I screw it up. I mean, here's a target, right? We're going to go in. We've got a flight of four. And the wind is blowing. So what does I do? Uh, little Dick trying to be a flight lead, he chooses, you know, there's three targets down there as an example. And so what I do, I try, I, I go and attack the target that's upwind. <laughs> so if it's upwind, there's a bunch of smoke, and the smoke drifts over all the other ones that they have to hit. <laughs> you know, a classic newbie screw-up. <laughs> And so the commander, the commander says, God damn it, Dick, if you want to go to Missy, then you can go. It's, get the hell out of here. I don't want to see you again. And uh, so then I enjoyed this, these classified guys that had, were, we had we had our own air-conditioned little trailers out in our own little cantonment area. And that's uh, the tip of the end of the spear, and that's where the action was, and that's where Dickie wanted to be. Boy, I was so, so happy and, and enthralled with that. That's why I stayed to do a second tour, to do actually 100 missions in Misty. So then I went up, and uh, what I saw into North Vietnam and the areas that we were, uh, it was a different world. And there was a, a, lot, of <laughs> a lot of ground fire and a lot of, a lot of targets uh, that had been hit. And we went back 35 years later. Uh, I went back with five guys that I would flew combat with. And I wanted to go back to that area. We call it uh, the root packs. And the, in North Vietnam is often in about six different areas. You know, two of them the Navy has, and then there's the ones up around Hanoi, and we were one of the ones down in the southern panhandle, just above the, the DMZ. It's called Root Pack 1. Uh, so that was, <clears throat> now that, was our, that was our primary area that we flew in all the time. And uh, I don't know where was I going with that. Well, I was trying to, I was trying to get to the, uh, what happened with Howie. Oh, with Howie. Okay, this is, now Howie was our, I'm sorry, <laughs> getting old and graybeard. <laughs> uh, Howie was the top gun at our gun school. He was really good. Uh, he was a fighter pilot's fighter pilot, man. I had a cute little blonde wife, a couple of little kids. Just, he was a cool guy. Anyway, he had, during gunnery school, he had an engine failure. And he ejected in gunnery school. And when he got back, he says, well, you know, how did it go? You know, everybody says, oh, why, he ejected? You know, what happened? Everybody wants to know. And he says, well, the only thing that happened, he says, it jarred my, he came back and he says his, his glasses were a jar. His sunglasses were a jar. That's his only issue. <laughs> and so now I'm up in Misty. So I it's think, like as cool as it gets, huh? Yeah, it's about <laughs> as cool as it goes. So uh, it says, Howie, you got to come up to Misty. Man, this is where the action is. Now, he didn't want to go. And uh, then I was so excited about what we were doing, and he's our top gun guy. And I don't think he was as had the adrenaline or that little combat gland as bad as I did. And uh, he finally acquiesced, and he joined Misty. And uh, on his first checkout ride, he got he basically he got killed. 
uh, him and <clears throat> him and Brian Williams, two Williams, Howard Williams and Brian Williams. They were in an area called Chapone, a very hot area up in Laos. And sure enough, they got hit on fire. And uh, Brian says the fire was burning from the engine compartment all the way, almost all the way into the back cockpit. And they said, uh, uh, he says, okay, we're gonna have to get out. So they headed uh, out a remote area in the jungle to, to eject. And he says, uh, says okay, and Brian says, okay, I'm gonna go. And Howard says, okay, I'm right behind you. And that's the last words he ever said. And Brian, and I was up there flying another missile sortie, and I heard heard this and went tearing over there. And uh, the Jolly Green was real close, and they picked him up, picked up Brian, but nobody heard. And, and I was really upset. I says, "Well, where's Howard? Did you see a parachute?" You know, and he didn't see anything. And I was kind of beefed about that, but it was Howard. He was my best friend, <laughs> and uh, now he's down. And uh, never heard. Never heard from him again, but they, I did locate the wreck site. Uh, dense jungle. They didn't think there was any human beings anywhere near the place. Uh, but he went down, and he was, uh, he, he, there was a little ridge, and you could see where the airplane clipped the jungle that was burning, and then went down into the canyon, and you could see the wreckage. And so every day I, I would go up there and real slow, almost kill myself, trying to <laughs> go real slow and look down in there to see if I could see anything. But it was just, you know, a wreck site. Uh, didn't hear a thing, so I thought, God, I gotta go up there and, and uh, on the ground and see my, my best buddy. So I made, a, I made an arrangement out of uh, Nakhon Phnom in KP. They have, uh, have a radar site up there, and they fly helicopters that they put the uh, the Roadwatch teams. You know, you guys, you're, you're <laughs> you know, your vintage. Uh, they go up there, and the snake eaters like Taco, the classic snake eater, and they put these guys in to watch the roads and stuff, and, and report back and forth. And they insert them, and then they try to take them out and stuff. So I contacted them, and I says, hey. Uh, can I get a ride in? Just you know, on your way in, drop me off at the wreck site, and then when you're going to leave, an hour or two, and then come back and pick me up and bring me back, and then I will know what happened to Howard. Because if I see an ejection seat or something there, then I will know whether he's dead or not. And so I had set that all up, ready to go, and I'm walking around bumping into myself too, because I'm the summary courts officer, so you have to. Uh, you know, all familiar with summary courts because if somebody gets killed, mm. uh, somebody is designated as the uh, is the guy that has to take care of his personal thing and pay all his bills and pack all of his stuff up and write the letter to his wife and stuff. So that was my duty for that that I didn't like, and I'm all set, ready to go. Uh, go over to, uh, to NKP and they're going to take me into the wreck site. I get this phone call, and it says. He says, uh, I'm a, I think he said it was a major. He said, I'm a major, but I can't tell you my name. He says, I know what you're going to do tomorrow, exact words. He says, don't do it. It's been taken care of. And he said, do you understand that? I says, yeah, he's been, don't do it. He's been taken care of. I understand that. And then before I could ask any more questions, uh, he was gone. <laughs> so I didn't go. 
Now, there was 18, 15 to 18 years later that I found out that, uh, that they knew that Howard was dead, or they actually killed him. In Laos, they killed everybody. If you went down in Laos, the policy was that they killed you, every single one of them. They, there was no capture. In North, <clears throat> in, in, in North Vietnam, you're a, value, you're a valuable asset. Now, if, if you bail out of North Vietnam, the civilians would kill you if they got to, got to you first. But uh, in fact, I got another story about another F-105 pilot that I saw being decapitated with machetes right in front of my eyes. But the thing about Howard, uh, it was 35 years later they found out what really happened, that he was found on the ground in uh, two stories. Uh, one of them went up there and they took his dog tags uh, one guy said he was dead, he had a broken leg, and he was at the foot of a tree. But I know what happened. He was, Howard broke his leg, and he was there, and they went up and killed him and took his dog tags away from him. And then he told the farmer to bury him, and, uh, but they didn't bury him deep enough. And he was exhumed by a large jungle animal, and that's all they found of him 18 years later <clears throat> when we finally buried him in, uh, in Arlington, what his remains were. What, what, what was the F-105 pilot that you saw get beheaded? Uh, there was, it was in the coastal plain. Now, the coastal plain uh, was flat right up to the edge of the ocean, and it was all farmers, you know, rice paddies and farmlands and very sparse, sparsely populated and stuff. And we were on a misty mission one day, and I looked, and coming right underneath me was this thing that was on fire. I didn't know that the 105 guy was even there. And, and it was a big shock. The guy was burning like mad. And so I pulled up, and I could see he was trying to make a turn towards the water and fairly low altitude, maybe three or 4,000 feet or lower. And I wasn't talking to him or anything, but I more or less joined up with him kind of high to watch him. Now, I knew, realized the thing was on fire, burning like mad, this F-105 Thunder Chief. And he was trying to turn to get to the water. And it, you know, it's kind of like a rooting section. That's us two misties in the airplane. You know, come on, hang in there. You are you're going to make it. You're almost there. You're almost there. And then there was a big explosion in the airplane, and it rolled upside down, and the pilot ejected. And he was high enough that he got a good shoot. And then the airplane, the 105, went over. And when he finally hit the ground, it looked like I don't know, ten cans of napalm. I mean, the biggest fireball I've ever seen. And so then, now he's fairly low altitude, he's hanging in a parachute. Uh, so, I, so I came around to, to, to circle him, and you could kind of see, uh, you could see the shadow that the parachute would make, and you could tell kind of how high it was. And so I timed it, so I came around, base the final, and, and I came by, you know, within, I don't know, uh, dragging the wing and a wingtip in the, you know, I mean really low. 20 feet, maybe, right by him. Now, he, just as he landed in the rice paddy, he took his helmet off. He was taking his helmet off, and he waved at me as I went by. And it was so close that I could recognize his face. And then I noticed that there's a whole bunch of other gunners that were just shooting like mad. And so we pulled up higher, back around, and then it was the strangest thing. I could see him in the rice paddy, and there was a perfect circle, a black circle around him. 
and it was it was all kind of collapsing on his on his porn. That's his black circle, and that was the black pajamas. Everybody had this black silk pajamas. Everybody that would wear that they wore up there, and then he started running, and this thing collapsed into a kind of a heart. <laughs> and in my next pass, I came around really low again, and uh, the farmers the farmers were on him, and they all had machetes, and they were chopping him up. And uh, I pulled up, and then you have really mixed emotions because I had the ability to kill every one of those people. You know, my 20 millimeter, I could kill every one of those farmers. But then you don't know if the, if the fighter pilot was, was alive or not. Probably wasn't. But you know, there's no way you can take any risk. And then you pull up, you have really a heavy heart. Holy crap. Uh, you know, a pretty emotional thing. Uh, there was a there was also another rescue. There was a, another shoot down that was <clears throat> I don't know maybe a number of weeks different. Uh, here again, it was another F one hundred five pilot and a wingman, and he had his wingman and uh, and he got shot down. And I went tearing up there and found his parachute canopy on the top of a ridge. Uh, it was. Uh, <clears throat> Right off the Quanke, there was a Quanke River, south fork of the Quanke River, and there's a little village down there. And it was a very steep slope that went up to the top of this ridge. And as I came over, came over, I looked at it, and I could see his parachute. And so we, so he came around. Now his wingman is with me, and we're talking. And 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 I made a really a, a bad decision. I, I really screwed up, and I still feel really bad about it today that I made a mistake that I shouldn't have. And that is, I should have sent him to get to the to to get fuel from our tanker right then. But the thing is that I could see the people in the village, and they were starting up the hill. And so we took turns uh, trying to put some strafe. I wouldn't strafe in the people, but I was putting strafe between the the people and and the pilot. And I couldn't see his his parachute anymore. And uh, he never came up on voice either. And so we were both doing that. And instead of sending him out to get fuel or leaving him there to keep the, well, we got the rescue going, and I could have went out and got fuel. But all of a sudden, we were really involved in keeping, you know, the people away from him so we could set up a rescue. Uh, I realized that I should have done this to start with, just a major amateur screw-up on my part. I still feel bad about it today is that I didn't check and see how much fuel we had. You know, what's your fuel state? And we were both ran out of fuel at the same time. So both of us had to leave and go out to the tanker. And when we came back, there was no voice, anything. And the 105 pilot, uh, later on I've tried to find out who these pilots were, <clears throat> and the guy that was on the top of the ridge I found that he had died. He never made it back as a prisoner of war, but the guy that was in the rice paddy did. And I don't have their names right now, and it's not important, but uh, anyway, I was wrong about that. And, and I found out later that the guy got killed. <clears throat> he did get chopped up by the farmers. And the guy on the top of the ridge, he got captured, and you know he made it through prisoner of war. And I found out about it when they finally got released in 1960. 73, I think it was. Uh, 
So as you're doing this, and again, there's incredible detailed stories in the book and about these these missions that you're doing. Um, I'm going to fast forward a little bit to, well, I guess it's a pretty notable mission for you. <laughs> you were uh, basically doing a test of a, of a theory of bringing guys up that you work directly with. Is that right? Our, one of our biggest problems uh, is target accuracy. And, you know, I'd hang it out and find a really great target. I'd find a barge. I'd find a st- storage area. And uh, we have a flight of, uh, I don't know, maybe it was a coincidence, but my perception was that the F-4s could barely hit the ground, much less my target. And it was not unusual that the that we'd put a flight of F-4s in on the target. And my BDA was that uh, uh, there was no ordnance hit within 10,000 meters of my target, no visible damage. It was very frustrating. You have a beautiful target, and they come in, and they couldn't hit anywhere near it. Uh, sometimes, sometimes they get so frustrated. Uh, I'd go down, and the Misties would do this. They weren't supposed to. We had our hard deck that we were supposed to, and I, I get so frustrated that I go down in, in the trucks that they couldn't hit. I'd go down and take out a couple of them with my, with my two 20-millimeter cannons. And after giving that BDA, I says, and, and just before they'd leave frequency, I'd pull up and say, hey, I got an addition to your, um, to your BDA. Now, we couldn't claim it for ourselves. We'd all get fired. But it, it's war, and, and, and damn it, this trucks are carrying bullets are going to carry or kill our kids in the South. Uh, you know, it's worth taking a risk, I thought. And so, by the way, uh, I, I want to revise your BDA. You got two trucks killed. Didn't make any sense. <laughs> but the but the so this new idea was to bring up guys that you different aircraft that were you thought would have a better chance of hitting targets. Okay, now we were frustrated about uh, the ability to hit the targets, and that was a big ongoing frustration. We'd find it, mark it accurately, but nobody could hit it. Pretty fat. Uh, a side note happened once, and I don't know why, there was a flight of uh, Navy A-4s off the Kitty Hawk, uh, the Nomads. And I never worked the Navy because, you know, I don't know what the Navy was doing in an Air Force area, but there they were. And I had a, uh, what I looked like was a storage area. It had bunkers and stuff. It looked like there's fuel or ammo storage area. Pretty good target. And so, wow, the A-4s would come up and Nomad would check in. And, you know, they'd all sound differently. The Navy would sound different than the Air Force guys. So I said, okay, I got a bunker storage area, and I described the target to them. And I says, okay, you know, green them up, arm them up, guys, get ready to go, because I'm, I'm in the mark. So I pulled up, went around, put a nice mark in the target. And uh, I said, okay, hit my smoke. And I waited and waited and waited. And finally the smoke, excuse me, started to dissipate and go away. And I asked him, <laughs> and I asked him, I says, hey, you nomad, is, uh, is there any problem? Do you see my smoke? He says, oh, yeah, I saw your smoke, Misty. But I was waiting for it to get the hell out of the way so I could see what the target was. I says, 
I'd never heard of that before. I mean, this is really strange. The Air Force guys don't do that. They just want to come up there and piss off their bombs and get their counters and go home early. Some of them. And, and he says, oh, Misty, I see what you're looking at. Wow. Now, he took over. You know, normally the Ford Air Controller, we control the strikes and stuff. He says, oh, I know what it is. He says, oh, okay. And he described it to the other, his, three, his, his flight. And he says, okay, two, you put your target, your bombs there, and three, and so forth. And he controlled the whole thing. And I'm sitting back and thinking, wow, this is really cool. <laughs> and uh, they did hit an ammo thing, and it burned for a couple of days. And I took some pictures of it and wrote a nice letter to the, to the Navy, for God's sake. <laughs> and they invited us to the Kitty Hawk. And we went out there and spent three days in <laughs> combat operations off Yankee Station. Uh, just because of, we wrote him a nice letter. Uh, it was really interesting, these nomads. Uh, another thing I found, the Navy has a camaraderie between attack pilots and, uh, and fighter pilots. You know, and it's a big camaraderie. And they were you know, hanging out with them for a while. And they were, one of them was having an argument about something, and he says, he says, ah, Jake, goddammit, he says, you're talking like a fighter pilot. The guy says, Take that back, you know, and they're really arguing. Said, Wait a minute, I'm a fighter pilot. You know what's wrong with that? But it was really a cool experience that we had with them. So anyway, what we wanted to do this day is that uh, now there's guys in that, that drop bombs in South Vietnam. Uh, they're working troops in contact, and you got a bloody you just don't piss bombs off around like we do up in North Vietnam. It has to be very accurate because uh, there's troops in contact and there's other friendlies on the ground. And the, the Ford Air Controllers in the South make great, you know, they go to great lengths that we don't go and bomb our own people. And so now these guys could really hit targets. And so it's my, my buddy uh, Chuck Shaheen. In fact, we were kind of high school buddies in some way. We come from the same area around Dinuba and we should chase the same girls and so forth. So. Anyway, Chuck had uh, Chuck had finished up his first tour. He might have had, I don't know, maybe 60, 60 sorties. And I was working on 118 or 105, I guess, Misty missions. Uh, and I had about five more to go before I was my normal rotation. I says, hey, Chuck, this is your champagne flight. I, hey, how about two... You know, I'll go with you in your backseat, you know, and I'll, it'll be your champagne flight, and there'll be a little article in the Orange Cove register that says, two hometown boys complete complete uh, uh, combat tour and, you know, whatever, a little blurb in some little podunk newspaper. I thought that's all it was going to be. So I had this, this is going to be a test. And so Chuck and I were going to go up there and find a target. Now, these are in-country guys. They hadn't been up to North Vietnam. And so I said, now, we've got to find a real safe target for these guys. You know, there's some areas that you don't take newbies into. I mean, it's some in, really, it's some intense area. And so we're looking around for kind of a benign area. And the best we can come up with is some goddamn truck parked <laughs> beside a karsh wall up there by a little river and a little road. And this truck wasn't camouflaged or anything. That should have been a clue right away. So finally, we looked around. And he says, well, this is about the best we can do. But now this is a test. 
these guys, the in-country guys, and they sent up some fighter weapons guys. The guy's been through the, the top Air Force's top gun school. Uh, fighter weapons, Nellis, we call them patch wearers, guys with their, their patch that they've been through the wider, the top gun school. They're guys really good. So there were three of them. Then they come up and we briefed them. And uh, I guess they could see the truck. And uh, the guy says, okay, uh, leads in. And he rolls in. He missed as bad as the F-4s did. He pulled off, missed the damn truck. He says, oh, Bessie, I'm sorry, I forgot to reset my altimeter. Well, bullshit. This is okay, too. <laughs> and he had some other excuse that his mill, his site didn't work right, and he, he missed. All. So the long and the short of it is the three expert patchwares for bombing accuracy. You know, the first guys should have taken that truck out. You know, they could drop it right in the guy in the truck's glove box if they wanted to. What the hell is going on? So all of them, all of them missed. Now, right then, our test was over, mm -hmm. and it should have stopped it, right? However, should have stopped it. it. But however, that damn truck was still sitting down there. And that's when I'm going to take this to the book. You say we couldn't bear to fail. Three passes, same results, and no 20 millimeter hits on the truck. Chuck decided the misty fact should give it a shot. Someone should have reminded us that when the 20 millimeter guns are beyond 3,500 foot slant range, the bullets just tumble and are rendered worthless. Until now, we had all flown above 4,500 foot hard deck, unwilling to deny ourselves this stupid truck that seemed to be just sitting there taunting us, Chuck went in. If the patch wearers couldn't do it, we would. However, we were, we were the forward air controller, not the fighter bomber, and what we were about to do was in direct violation of standard protocol. I checked the altitude indicator. The three degree dive angle put us flat and right next, right on top of the road. The karst cliff was now a blur, close and right next to me. We were low enough that I could even see the pebbles on the road. This was a no kidding, low angle, Luke gun school strafe pass. Chuck had the throttle in full burner, burner real steady as only Chuck can fly. In the weeds now, he opened fire and put a long concentrated burst of 20 millimeter cannon right on target. I could not see the truck from the back seat, but was certain he plastered it. Great, we got some BDA. The test was successful, the champagne sweet, even though the details were gonna be fudged a bit. Fudged hell, in reality, this mission was a total failure. What happened in the next two seconds would nullify everything we had done. Chuck came off the trigger and started a hard climb. As the high G came on, there was a loud bang under my right seat. It sounded as if Pete Rose had hit the bottom of the fuselage with a baseball bat on a home run swing. There was a whoosh as my rearview mirror was filled with fire. When we pulled up, I could see the fire's glow on the cliff wall. Looking around, I determined there were no good options for an ejection. I'm afraid it's Hanoi Hilton, here we come. The drop tanks had gone dry and Chuck called for a heads up as we were going to clean the wing and jettison the external fuel tanks, pylons and rocket pods. As we pulled up, the other F-100s joined us and reported we were torching and confirmed it wasn't an internal fire. Chuck pulled it out of burner, and the angry red fire in the mirror changed to a white vapor. The afterburner flame had ignited the fuel stream, and without it, the fire choked itself out. The fire was out, but we were hemorrhaging fuel at a, at a prodigious rate. There was talk 
about turning off generators, transfer pumps, looking for a tanker, etc., but no practical solution presented itself. As we looked ahead at the coast coming up in the distance and watched the fuel gauge rapidly unwind, it was painful, obvious the gauge would read empty before we reached long before we reached the water. All we could do now was reflight the relight the afterburner and use the remaining fuel for speed before it completely gushed out, hoping we could still make it to the safety of the Gulf of Tonkin. The guys on our wing looked closely to see if the fuel was running inside the fuselage where it might blow us out of the sky upon relighting the afterburner. They let us know it didn't look like it, but there was no way to know for sure. Fighter pilots like to fly close. For some reason, it seems the closer you get, the more help you can lend to stricken comrade. As we looked down at the small farms of the coastal plain, knowing farmers were waiting with machetes in hand, this decision became a no-brainer. Chuck calmly called, okay, we're gonna relight the burner. We had never seen two wingmen go from close fingertip to high forward spread root formation so quickly. Those guys got away from you. Chuck mumbled something about candy asses, and if those patchwares had hit the damn truck, we wouldn't be in this fix. He pushed the throttle out board and relit the burner. The white vapor stream in my mirror again turned red with fire. The wingman said, no sweat, it's only torching. Wow, some torch. It was only seven, it was over 700 feet long. We were accelerating in a slight calm, climb low on fuel with wings clean and going like stink. I think we may have gone supersonic. Chuck's decision to relight the burner was a good one and it looked like we might make it to the water. Pilots seemed to prioritize things. Only after returning to Phuket did I remember hearing a loud rattlesnake sound in the headset and noticed something on the glare shield. Our threat warning system was showing a SAM missile. It was going wild. Surface to air missile launch flight panel was lit up like a Christmas tree. We were four F-4s flying straight and level to the coast, a perfect target, but no one in our formation gave this warning more than a passing passing glance. Normally, we would have called Sam, Sam, and broken for the deck. Afterward, the patchware lead told me, yes, I do remember that. I just reached up and turned it off. For some reason, the enemy did not launch the Sams. They probably thought we were going to die in the fire, so why waste a missile? I believe most warriors during times uh, during the intense heat of combat, resigned themselves to the likelihood that survival is improbable. As I sat there watching the torrent of fire behind us, the unwinding fuel, fuel gauge, and the distant and that distant coast growing nearer, deep in my psyche, a small glimmer of hope emerged. Maybe we can make it. We might actually get out of this alive, not dead, and not as POWs. Halfway to the safety of the water, I made a promise to myself that if we could make it to the coast and eject and get rescued, I would not be coming up here anymore. This was my 105th Misty sortie, almost twice that of a normal Misty tour. No one could ever say I was a coward or a quitter. My next action had to be done perfectly. I had often visualized what it would be like to eject on that violent rocket seat, riding it up and out. I had studied and trained for each of the procedures. I even joined a skydiving club and completed 50 sport parachute jumps. I couldn't have been better prepared. I'd always been paranoid about my personal parachute and made it clear that no one else was to touch it, ever. I would meticulously adjust the straps to my frame since I had practical experience in skydiving. I was well acquainted with the agony to the groin area and the twins that resulted from an ill-fitting harness. A perfect fit was critical 
and was always on my mind. Prior to my ejection, I considered a few things, but not in any sequence. I remembered running out of fuel. Chuck had the Hun in full afterburner and we both watched the fuel gauge unwind to zero. I always wondered how accurate those gauges were and was about to find out. As the needle passed empty, the engine quit. This was not a sudden flame out, but reminded me of a pilot slowly pulling the throttle back to idle. However, the RPM did not stop at idle, but continued to unwind. I recalled that there were a lot of towering cumulus clouds off the coast. Chuck and I searched for an area to eject, and as soon as we spotted a break in the clouds, we knew it was time. The HC-130 Hercules search and rescue plane, Crown 6, had just popped into view, which was comforting. During the course of this entire catastrophic mission, my cassette recorder had been running, but I neglected to remove the tape and put it in my pocket prior to ejection. Bummer. As soon as we made it to the Gulf, I experienced an odd sense of calm. I realized this would be my final combat mission. This was the first time I truly believed I would make it out of the war alive. I was going home to see my family. All I had to do now was simply eject and get rescued. I had complete faith in my equipment. The weather was good and the Gulf, glass smooth and inviting, was welcoming me. Yes, this was going to be a piece of cake. We had the ideal speed and altitude necessary for a successful ejection. I said, well, Chuck, it's time to go. I reminded Chuck about the half second delay on his seat. He responded, no, if you go first, there's no delay. I began to argue, but thought better of it. Okay, now, visor down, straps tight, elbows in, head back hard on the headrest. I closed my eyes, lifted the seat handles, and while squeezing both triggers, wondered what the next five minutes of my life would be like. I wanted to avoid being anywhere near the Hun's point of impact. My rocket seat fired and the e-ticket ride up the rails was slow, smooth, and wonderful. It worked. Once clear, I kicked the seat away from me and my chute opened with a jerk. Looking around, I saw three F-100s, Crown 6, and a couple of F-4s that had joined the orbit. I looked around for Chuck but didn't spot him or our crippled Hun. I could only assume Chuck had waited a while and ejected inside a cloud. I retrieved the survival radio, turned it on, and expected to hear my chute locator beeper, but heard nothing. I had made two emergency ejections in my lifetime, and the chute beepers failed on both. I tried to call, but couldn't work the damn thing with my helmet on, so I put the radio away. The next item was the four-line parachute cut. Sure enough, the conical C9 chute canopy would oscillate side to side as air spilled out one side then the other. I loved skydiving and was eager to test the four-line cut. Cutting four of the 28 lines would allow air to escape in a controlled manner and stabilize the canopy. I grabbed my government-issued hook blade knife and reached for the two shroud lines on my right and cut them. Next, I grabbed the two left hook hooked the knife around the shroud lines, cutting those two clean. But to my horror, there was another cut. I had accidentally, accidentally cut into one of the four suspension risers. I slowly turned to survey the damage and saw the nylon web riser was cut 90% of the way through. Had I cut it completely, the chute would have collapsed and I would have streamered into the gulf. My heart was in my throat. My God, fly 155 misty missions and die by my own hand. 
I think Jonesy, the first Misty to fly 100 missions, did the same thing on his final mission bailout. Do not give fighter pilots knives. Much later, someone in the parachute shop got smart and took away the knives from the flailing fighter pilots and replaced them with a four-line release system that required no cutting. Hanging in the chute, I took one last look at North Vietnam, remembering all that had happened to me during the past eight months. As the realization that I would not be returning took hold, I was flooding flooded with an unanticipated sense of relief. I remembered to deploy my raft in my survival kit, but was so shaken from the knife and parachute episode that I had forgotten to activate my underarm life preservers until just before hitting the water. Without them, the weight of the survival gear would have pulled me straight to the bottom of the gulf, sinking me like a brick. I barely had time to inflate one side as my feet hit the warm, clear water. With no wind, My chute settled right on top of me. What a mess. I struggled to untangle myself, pulled the raft over, and boarded. I attempted to relax and enjoy the quiet solitude as a new member of the exclusive Gulf of Tonkin Yacht Club. It was amazing how clear the water was and how good survival smelled. As I... As I read, as I read these uh, these ejection stories, I'm always surprised that you, you guys like have time to think about it and set it up. Kind of, I always, in my mind, I always pictured ejections. You know, you get hit and you have a second and you just pull it and you go. And and you guys are sitting there thinking like, okay, well, we, looks like we're far enough. We got it at a good altitude. You have time to think about it. Uh, on this particular incident, there was a there was a lot of time. <clears throat> so that, you know that we talk about. About the warrior ethic. A real warrior, if he worries about making it home, he's not where the shit is a warrior. He might as well just stay home. And if you're going to go up and do warrior type things, you have to accept the realization that you're probably not going to make it. And once you do that, then you can become an effective warrior. You can focus on the job. That's right. And, and on on fire burning out there, and I thought maybe I was going to make it. For the first time, I thought, because I had this premonition about uh, about being captured. In fact, uh, I used to go down into our intelligence session where they could get a lot of classified information, and I was surprised about how much they knew about the prisoner of war status, even the interrogators and their name and the New Guy Village and what was going to happen to you and those rope tortures and stuff. Uh, I was very, very familiar with that, and it was it was like a premonition. And when we got hit and pulled off, I thought, this is it, man. Uh, what are they calling the rat or something? I says, well, I think I'm going to be able to meet the rat now. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, that full transition, that they, we may make it to the water. And then for the first time, I thought, I'm going to make it. And since I'd done two tours, almost two tours, Nobody would give me any problem. I says, man, <laughs> I found everything that I needed, everything I wanted to know about, you know, maybe it's a selfish thing. Could I be one of those warriors? Could I be one of those guys that flew those missions over Nazi Germany when three out of four of them died? Uh, did, I have the, did I have the courage? Could I really do that? And I found out. And, you know, having that information to me subconsciously from my own personal psyche was really important. And I learned a lot of other things too. <clears throat> uh, 
I made a survey of some fellow fighter pilots, and it says, the thing is, what happened when you first started to be shot at, the very first reaction, the very first time? And we talked about it in the book a little bit. Uh, <clears throat> the, first, the first reaction was the audacity. Not that I'm scared, not that I'm going to drink away and, and duck down between my knees or, or whatever. It was the audacity of that son of a bitch to shoot at me. That's the first reaction. And maybe that's, uh, I don't know, maybe a rite of passage into being a warrior. So what was the survey? Oh, it was, it was uh, the survey that I, uh, they were just mainly fellow, fellow fighter pilots, and I tried to ask some of the, the people that were, uh, that, would, that had ground, ground combat, like you did, Jocko, uh, what was their reaction. But I, I wasn't able to, to really, that was an informal thing. I just mm -hmm. wanted to know, oh, got it. was I unique, or was this very, very typical of what happened when you first get shot? And I found that it's probably fairly typical that there wasn't any of the guys that I knew about that I flew with when they first got shot uh, did the, <laughs> the duck down and scream for my mother or, or, or whatever. It was just the audacity. And then if you survive that, you're a warrior. And I'd, I would like to think that maybe that was a pretty common thing too on, on all aspects of, of uh mortal combat with your fellow men. So that was your last combat operation in Vietnam. Uh, so what, what happened after that? I mean, after that, you, did, they, did they give you an option and say, all right, you, know, you, can, you can head home now? Uh, well, I still had my one-year tour, and I, was, uh, I only had about, I don't know, a week or 10 days. Now, the Misties, <laughs> if you're involved in something like that, uh, nobody give us any crap about our illegal hats or our illegal mustaches. Or I saw a it, picture of your mustache. Yeah, it or any goddamn good. thing. Illegal. Any goddamn thing we <laughs> wanted to do. You know, there was always some spit and polish colonel that would come up and give us and give us a bunch of crap about uh, things that are not really germane to a combat operation in the jungles of frickin' Vietnam. I like shining my shoes or something like that. And it says, okay, Colonel, well, why don't you, it says, I'm scheduled for a Misty 1-1 in the morning. Why don't you take my mission for me? And I'll stay home and clean my shoes. <laughs> wow, that's okay. Cool it. So basically, if, you're in, if you are in an environment where you're probably not going to make it anyway, uh, that was your mindset. Uh, we did a bunch of other stuff. We acquired our own DC-3, a whole DC-3, and we and we go back and forth to Hong Kong anytime we wanted to. <laughs> Or we're supposed to have a, a one R and R where you meet your wife in Hawaii. The guys that were married would go to Hawaii. Well, we go in and forge papers. Or one of them was uh, we go down to the personnel or I don't know the admin office, and they have these forms. And one of the forms was a uh, uh, for emergency leave. And so we got a real one, and we looked at it, and somebody had a typewriter. And so we could copy that, that form. Nobody ever checked on it. I mean, it was, a, it was an authorized form. And so uh, in, in my example, uh, you know, we made up authorization, some colonel's name, and we'd always have fun. Like, he could sign his name with the left hand or the right hand, you know. 
I mean, it looked official, but it was phony as hell because we just made them up. <laughs> and I used one of those, and I went down to the, uh, the cargo area there at Phuket, and I handed this, and within 24 hours, I was back in the sack with my wife in Sacramento. This was after you got shot down? No, no, no. It was, oh, that was just it, normal. It, it was during the during the eight months that I right. was there. You we, just we were just took this emergency up. leave. Yeah, we'd go to Hong Kong if we <laughs> wanted to. You know, nobody messed with us at all. The only thing that we couldn't forge was pay. Uh, You're probably lucky you couldn't. Yeah, but anything <laughs> Otherwise else. Otherwise, you would have probably been, they probably would have caught that one. No, they would have caught that one, and that wouldn't have been right anyway. But, but as far as anything else, we'd go and do whatever the hell we wanted to. And. And not only that, the Missies were known for, uh, uh, oh, i got to give you something, too. It's our calling card. Uh, we could do whatever we want to. So I went down and I spent seven days at home, which is totally illegal. You're not even supposed to go home at all. But my emergency <laughs> leave papers worked just fine. <laughs> and so at Travis Air Force Base, where my wife and my one daughter was there, uh, I went back and I gave him my emergency leave orders. <laughs> and the dispatcher there at the military transport or mat terminal, he says, okay, you and your wife uh, go back and have a nice steak dinner at the club and a bottle of wine and come back here at uh, 10 o'clock and uh, you'll be on your way. We got a flight going out for you. And so I did, and like I said, less than 24 hours, I think in 20 hours, I was back in Phuket. I thought, you know, I could, I could almost commute to this thing. <laughs> So it was, uh, it was really a devil may care. You know, you just, we're misties. We do all this stuff, and nobody's going to fuck with us. Yeah. On the ground or in the air. <laughs> now let's, I'll show you my calling card. You'll get a kick out of this. It's a... Uh, Two sides. I think you could look at that and maybe read it. So side one says, <laughs> get facted by a super fact. Because <laughs> they were the super savers. They called them super facts. Get facted by a super fact. Call Misty for appointment, contact Hillsboro or Cricket. What are those? What's Hillsborough? Those are uh, airborne command, airborne well, uh, air traffic control for the want of another word. <laughs> Easy terms. Flak-free areas optional at extra cost, specializing in SAMs, trucks, supply areas, and rest caps. Then on the other side, it says, do not make rapid movements. This man is a trained professional killer hired by your government to seek out and destroy enemies of the state. He has nerves of twisted blue steel and must be handled very carefully. When done so, he becomes very docile. You are advised to give him the love and care he needs so badly. Signed, U.S. Department of Defense. <laughs> you can keep that, please. Outstanding. <laughs> uh, so what happened? So now the war's over for you. The war's over for me, and then uh, I got sent directly to another war, an important war, uh, a war that if we'd lost, we'd lose our flag, and that was the Cold War. And then right out of the jungles of Vietnam, I found myself sitting in the same F-100 with a one megaton thermal nuclear hydrogen bomb on the centerline pylon, sitting in a bunker with a target someplace on the other side of the Iron Curtain for four years. 
And were you stationed in England at this time? Stationed in England. So how long, uh, what's your schedule like? Well, schedule, it was a a three-month rotation. You spent uh, a month at home, you know, family and training, and and then we spent a month at Wheelis in North Africa doing gunnery training, you know, dropping bombs and whatever. And then you spent another, and then the third month you were in a bunker someplace. Just waiting right, to make the flight. Yeah, right the out of, right on the, right next to the Iron Curtain <clears> with a target <throat> on the other side someplace, like in Turkey <clears throat> or in Italy. So that was the the three, uh, the ninety day or this thirty day rotation. Did you ever get uh, spun up? What was the closest you came to launching? Did you ever get the 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 call like, oh, it's go time? Well, if you can imagine, there's twelve of us. Twelve, we call them Victor Alert. Twelve airplanes hot cocked with a uh, crypto code release from the president to be able to arm that weapon and, and deliver it. Uh, as you can imagine, nuclear weapons are very closely controlled, and rightfully so, I would say. <laughs> and uh, uh, I would sit on alert, and I look up at that horn, that klaxon. And I thought, if that son of a bitch goes off, <laughs> uh, the thing is that they, they didn't mess around with that. It was either all out go or not go. There wasn't any in there between. There was no drill or anything like no, this. No, there was no, well, we'll drop a bomb and scare you or something like that. There wasn't any of that commitment. And the whole thing was coordinated from NATO to nuclear artillery right next to the FIBA or right next to the Iron Curtain. And then us were rolling stuff back, and then the B-52s, you know, they would come in for deeper penetration. And it was all go. And if they, like I looked up there, if that horn went off, I thought, fuck. You know, there's no way to get back either. You know, it's all bullshit that you can come back, but what am I going to come back to? Yeah, and you knew you know that, right? I mean, you know if you launch on that thing, it's well, that's the like, end of the world. Like when we were in England, sitting alert, we were a nuclear delivery thing. We had 12 active... Uh, lines, 12, there in England when we were home for that 30 days. And you know that if this thing started, that that's a primary target. And there's probably only 12 guys, if this thing ever kicked off, there's going to be 12 individuals at Lake and Heath Air Base that are going to be alive. Everybody else is going to be dying. So you take off with an armed thermonuclear weapon. And in your rearview mirror, everything that you know and love, your family, your friends, everything disappears in a nuclear cloud. And you often wonder, I got that son of a bitch. It's in my centerline pylon, and I'm really pissed off. (laughs) So we thought, well, we'd we'd go upwind and bail out over some Norwegian fjord and Mm -hmm. climb in a cave and wait till all the radiation went away or whatever you can visualize for something like that. However, I lost more com- I lost more comrades in the Cold War than I did in the Vietnam War. From accidents, training accidents? Uh, or from what? Well, a lot of it was highly classified. Uh, the Gary Powers thing, uh, the reconnaissance that the, RB, the RB-47s did. And there was a lot of other clandestine things that even today, they know nothing about. <clears throat> now, there's a lot of memorials. This is one thing is my pet peeve right now, is that there's Korea, all the wars. Everybody has a monument there on the mall. 
and there's no monument about the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, there wasn't any battle line, and there wasn't any casualty report and stuff. It was all classified and stuff. And we won that damn thing. We really did. We won it. And I can always say that I got shot down twice, once in the Cold War, <laughs> the one that mattered, and then the Vietnam War. Yeah, because you had another ejection. Right. What, what happened on that ejection? Uh, well, the, the, the saying was, you know, and a lot what of— what happens if you have a nuclear weapon on your aircraft and you eject? Or you would, would you never fly with a nuke, a live nuke? No, they okay. would never—I don't— uh, the Tactical Air Command, the Strategic Air Command, B-52 Chrome Domes, I think they did fly with uh, f- with fully armed nukes ready to go. And, and I think they quit that after they dropped a couple of them inadvertently. <laughs> when in, anyway, that was an embarrassing thing. Uh, during my time, we never flew with them. We flew with the dummies. And we'd go out and drop them on the range, uh, uh, you know, to see the accuracy. But if you're dropping a, a really powerful bomb, <laughs> the only thing we would do, we'd write on the side of the bomb in grease pencil, something like, um, I don't know who the, who the Soviet premiers were, whatever. Because um, there was one, one thing, you come at 500 knots right on the deck at 50 feet and you pickle it off and then you try to keep going and get in the way as far as you can. <laughs> And uh, he put the thing on the side, and it said, well, he, he says, well, Uncle Ho, wasn't, it wasn't Uncle Ho, what the hell was it, the, whatever the Soviet thing mm-hmm. was. He says, you got three choices. You can either run for 37 seconds, or you can dig for 37 seconds. And the third choice is you can do any combination of either one you want. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of sick, sick humor, I guess. <laughs> so what was it, how'd you eject again? Well, I was on a test hop. Uh, actually, in England, I got kind of tired of going out to what we call the Marsh Gunnery Range and dropping little BDU-33 blue bombs, practicing. And I wanted something of a little, because I was a maintenance guy. I had an A&P license, and I like maintenance. And so I was going to go over and do the Chief of Quality Control Flight Test Maintenance Officer, which is really a neat job, because we got to fly the airplanes without the the pylons and without the drop tanks, and they were clean, and they were really a lot of fun to fly. And the missions were short and very demanding. And uh, one problem, one thing, if you're a wing commander and you want to get fired, those, we call them victor lines, victor alert lines. And uh, whether they're in commission or not is very important. And if the wing commander wants to get fired, he's all he has to do is drop one of those lines because of maintenance or some other thing. Because when they check in every morning down at whatever headquarters, all of his nukes are ready to go and the pilots are briefed. And then all of a sudden there wasn't. Now the weather in England was really dog shit a lot of times. <clears throat> we're supposed to have VFR 5,000 5, overcast and five miles visibility. But it came up that there was a lot of a lot of maintenance, and the airplanes were coming out of maintenance, and they were backed up because they couldn't get f- flight tests. And so it came to the point one day that we were going to lose one of those nuke lines. Bad thing. Ooh, that was really bad. And so, <laughs> so all the, you know, in England, I think it was, <clears throat> I think it was like 600 foot overcast and drizzle, and maybe two or three miles visibility. 
and uh, the vice wing commander, Colonel Hurd, he come to me and he says, hey, Dick, I know the weather's really bad, but God damn, we need this, we need this thing uh, to replace it, you know, or we're going to lose one of the victor lines. And, of course, hell, I'm a combat guy. I said I can do anything. Say, go get them. And so, <clears throat> so I taxi out and light the burner and go down the runway, pull the nose up. Now, it's really a fun, fun thing because you can run in full afterburner. A full afterburner climb with an airplane without all the ordnance on it, boy, it's really, it's really a sparky little airplane. <laughs> and it, it's an afterburner climb to 40,000 feet. And I break out on top over the North Sea at about 42,000 feet, I can see. So we have weather from 40,000 feet all the way to 600 feet home. <laughs> and one of the tests is a negative G-check. Uh, and that's where you, some guys roll inverted, I just pull up and then push it over to negative G and all the stuff floats up. And in, and in the F-100, uh, the canopy was designed in such an area. Now there's always dirt and crud and, and uh, screwdrivers and nuts and bolts and crap. <laughs> and it all ends up right over your head, <laughs> but just behind your head. And when you come back to positive G, that it all falls. And it falls, they, they gather it all up very cleverly the way the physics of the airplane is, and it goes right down the back of your neck. <laughs> happens every time. So I always had a collection of screwdrivers and wrenches and stuff I found in the cockpit, and I'd put it on the board and say, anybody, any mechanic up there that would like to get it, they can, you know, they can come and claim their wrench. Of course, nobody ever claimed it and stuff. So I did one. I did one of those, and when I came back to positive G, I felt a horrible clunk. I mean, a major clunk, just like the engine was loose or something. And I thought, God, what the hell is that? And so this time I, I dove it, got a lot more speed, pulled the nose up really heavy, and really jammed the stick forward. And sure enough, there was another big shift of weight, it seems like, right behind me. Only this time, when I came back to positive G, the 42 PSI normal operating position of the oil pressure went from there to zero in a bat of an eye, clunk. And so now I uh, had this big, huge clunk, like the engine was loose. And I thought, well, maybe it pulled a wire loose because the engine was running fine, but it had zero oil pressure. Another thing, too, if usually if you have a broken oil line, you know, the, it'll, the oil pressure will just kind of kind of bounce around a little bit and slowly decay. But, but to go to absolute zero and it's breaking at the bat of an eye, just bing, zero. And that's not normal. And of course, you want to think it's, uh, you want to think it's not real serious because where you are and you finally think, I'm out over the North Sea, there's weather all the way to 600 feet at home. And uh, I says, okay. <clears throat> so I practiced, uh, I, I have to call Mayday. Okay, Mayday, Mayday, Mayday. Uh, it's Ring Dove 2-1, that's the call sign. Ring Dove 2-1, Mayday, 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 where I am and what my problem is. And so I practiced a couple of times so I could get my really cool Chuck Yeager voice. <laughs> and it took a while too, because the first time I tried it in my headset, it didn't sound very good. So anyway, I got it really cool. <clears throat> And uh, one of the procedures is if you have zero oil pressure, you don't want to jockey the engine back and forth, right? You don't want to set the power. 
and uh, that means it'll, it'll run longer. So I knew that I needed about 83% on final approach and an extra 20 knots to get level because the F-100 did not have a zero-zero seat. Uh, I think it was, but you had to get level. If you were descending, you had no chance of making it. Okay, and that extra 20 knots would get you level. Okay, half laps, 83%, and start down into the Merck. And they had to vector me around a little bit for identification back in those days. Anyway, it took an extended period of time. And I was telling them, I finally got on the GCA controller. And I says, look, give me uh, transmission brakes. You know, tell me you're on glide path, turn left, whatever the, the dialogue is. But give me transmission brakes so in case something happens, you know, that I can call you. And of course, the GCA controllers... <laughs> They, when they start giving you instructions, they just clamp down on the, mm. and, uh, the transmitter. And so, therefore, nobody heard anything at home when I was on final approach. Anyway, kind of got a short position. And I was really proud of myself. I finally intercepted glide path. I lowered the nose, lowered the nose, the half flaps, had the gear down. And, hey, 83% was perfect. I never jockeyed the engine at all. This is really cool. And I'm coming down and they're giving me the dialogue about left and right on glide path and so forth. And I just started to break out. I couldn't see the runway, but I could start to see down, you know, a little bit. And, uh, and I was thinking about, well, I'm rolling out of the runway and how am I going to write this thing up and so forth. So then there was a grinding noise. Uh, the intensity grew more and more. And, and then it, was, it grew louder and louder and louder, and then, all, then there was a huge explosion as the compressor stalls. And when the compressor stalls, then it shoots fire out both ends of the airplane. So there's this grinding and this huge bang and fire shooting out in the front and dirt comes up in your face. <laughs> and now I'm looking for the, I call it the small corner of time. There's a small corner of time from here, just a couple of seconds, that corner of time, I can survive. And if I'm outside of that, the ejection won't work. I mean, I'll hit the ground before. And so to use every bit of that, <laughs> that extra 20 knots that you have on board to level off and eject, and maybe that, that the parachute will open in time. Uh, and so I did, and I leveled off. But then I looked down, and there was a little town called Brandon, right on the final approach. And I could, see the, I could see the town right in front of me. And I knew that if I banked the airplane, that it would probably just bank and then right itself and still go into the town. So this happened in just a couple of seconds. I'm slowing down, I'm coming back on the stick to slow down to get in that small corner of time. And I trim it, got the left trim going, and reached down with my left hand and grabbed the handle and pull it up. Whoops. <laughs> and pull it up and it blew the canopy off and then immediately squeezed both triggers. And knowing where that jet is gonna be in a, hound fit in a handful of time, that is the most wonderful, smoothest experience you'll ever have, <laughs> is that ride up and out of that thing. But the time compression is really interesting because as, it, as the airplane was going, up the, was going up the rails, I thought there's gonna be an accident board and they're going to go through all the paperwork, and I'm going to have to remember what I did for the last three days, what I drank, and I'm thinking about all that stuff, going up the ejection rails. And then I thought, my God, 
I had to put the, the colonel's name on there, and it's Hurd, Colonel Hurd. Is it H-E-R-D? Or, and I, mis, you know, I misspelled it. And I thought, God, everybody in the whole world is going to see that thing. And on this paper that, you know, the flight plan or the clearance thing, the, and I misspelled the guy's name. How horrible. That's all going through your mind, see? It's still going up to the rails. And then uh, the parachute opens, and, uh, you know, you can feel it. Uh, as the canopy starts to open, all the all the shroud, not the shroud line, but um, yeah, the right, not the risers, but the shroud lines are all in there and they're bundled, and you can feel them coming off your back. See, and then it opened, and then it was, then it's opened, and it happened so quick. I looked straight between my legs, expecting just to look down right into the cockpit. Of course, that was ridiculous, and I looked around and off my left shoulder, and I could see the airplane. And airplanes flying along, and now I'm low enough I can see the runway. And for all the work, the airplane was going to frickin' land on the runway. <laughs> I thought, boy, they're going to, boy, they're going to get. I'm going to get frowned at for this, you know, jumping out of a perfectly good airplane, and it lands on the runway, and I ain't in it. <laughs> and then the next thing I know, I'm in the trees. The parachute comes down through the trees. Uh, if you're going to bail out, uh, pine trees are very nice, kind of smaller pines, because you know they're interlaced and you come down through them and uh, they bend just right. And by the time I got to the surface, I ended up stopping about an inch or two above <laughs> the beautiful pine floor. And then with another shake, then the parachute canopy came down, you know, around my. Okay, now I'm right out of Vietnam, see, and I've ejected, and. Uh, you're in the the E and E train for a whole year. I've been training for escape and evasion. Hide the parachute, you know. Get the radio. Get that damn beeper off, which didn't work this time either. The parachute uh, beeper, and I got to get the radio out. But in, in in England, we don't have the double radios and stuff. And so right over there, there was a guy, an English guy in a coat and tie. He was out trimming the, the Queen's forest. And his eyes were about big as saucers, and he's looking, you know, eyes open. Of course, I come down, and we're nuclear alert, and I have a gold visor on. So here this guy comes crashing down through the trees, and he said he heard the, he heard the explosion, he heard the seat come down, and the canopy come down. And then this guy, spacecraft with a golden helmet, come down right in front of him, basically. And, uh, and he, he's starting to back away. I said, no, no, I need your help. I need your help. And, uh, yeah, come on. Then I took the helmet off, and then I thought, God, i got to call somebody. You know, my radios are normally in my vest in Vietnam, but now they're in the damn seat kit, one radio in the seat kit. So the only way to get to it <laughs> is to pull that handle on your, on your seat, seat kit that you sit on. It's got your raft and survival gear and stuff in there. So I pull the handle, and a CO2 cartridge comes off, and this yellow raft you know, emerges. <laughs> out and making all this goddamn noise right in front of this guy. And he turns around and starts running away. <laughs> Where'd the plane hit? Uh, the airplane The airplane came and it started a very left turn and it just missed the town. It hit right beside Brandon, right across the road. It didn't hurt anybody, but it, uh, it you know, the typical fireball and stuff that comes down. And, and as I was pulling back, I says, it just blew and I'm getting out. Now, nobody heard me. Now, the colonel that was coming back from across country, he heard me. He's the only one that heard my, my call. 
And uh, so, so anyway, I took the helmet off and I ran and got him. I said, hey, hey, I need your help. And I brought him back. And uh, what the hell? Oh, yeah, then I got down to the kit and opened it up and found the radio and opened it up and turned it on. And I called. Uh, I made a radio call. And for the time that it blew up, it was only about 93 seconds that whole time that happened. Okay, now I got a really good drinking buddy, and he is the uh, the airfield. He's the airfield uh, uh, support helicopter, and it's a it's called Pedro, and Pedro is uh, HH-43 and has intermission rotors, and their whole mission is to uh, <clears throat> they have the Sputnik that hangs. It's a you know, it's a big ball, firefighting stuff. It's about as big as this table. It's a, it's a sphere. And the fire, and this whole thing is set up so the firefighters in their, in their uh, aluminum suits, and there's a, a big fireball and burning, and the pilot's inside. they got to go rescue them. So the rotor horse pushes it away, and they take this Sputnik with their firefighting thing, and they fight their way through the flames, and they get in the cockpit, and they, and they pull the pilot out. That's their whole thing. And so, now I didn't know about this, but uh, nobody heard me say that I was getting out. And the end of the runway, the mobile controller, uh, his name was Jeffco. Yeah. In fact, he was a prisoner of war. Yeah, I think he was. I could be wrong about that. But anyway, he said he's a mobile controller. And so he starts screaming on the radio. He says, get out there quick. No shoot, no shoot. There is no shoot. I didn't see a shoot. Get out there quick. And he's screaming at the Pedro. And so the guy lifts off and he's, and he's in the helicopter and he's heading for the fireball out there. It's going out. And he, and he keeps saying, now the only thing that he saw was a landing light came out of the weather and crashed into a big fireball. So, I was, so the guy, my buddy in the Pedro helicopter, he's, he's out there, he's going, the guy's screaming at him to get out there quick, and so he's going fast. And for some reason, he thought he could get there quicker if he pickled off that spudnik that was <laughs> hanging below it. So he pickled it off, see. And it, crash halfway to the wreck site. And so, so he's coming around, he's circling the wreck sites. All you see is a big, uh, you know, typical crash site with debris and fireball and stuff. And he's thinking, oh shit, you know, that's Rutan out there. It's my bad best friend, it's really terrible. And then he gets out there in a minute, and 93 seconds or something, I call him on the radio. I says, hey, I'm down, come and get me, <laughs> come and get me. And so now his first thought, he's circling this fireball, and he thinks that I'm in there, right? Calling for help. And I call him and I says, get your ass out here and get me. <laughs> and then his whole thing, his whole training, everything he's trained up for was that Sputnik thing, and there's the fire and the classic situation, and they're gonna land and, and push the fire out of the way, but he pickled it off, and it's not there. <laughs> Oops. And he's heart sick. He says, my God, I've screwed up. Now Rutan's gonna burn alive down there, and I could have saved him. That's really bad. <laughs> and then he thinks, and then he, then, he, then he starts to realize, wait a minute, there's no way that, that, <laughs> that somebody can be alive in that thing down there. <laughs> And so he calls and he says, he says, then he called my name. He says, Dick, is that you? 
and says, yeah, get your ass out here and get me. You know, thinking of Vietnam, I need to get rescued really quick. And then and it's really interesting, this plaintive voice that he said, he says, where are you? He says, I bailed out about a mile short. He says, you bailed out? You rejected? And then you can understand the metamorphosis of emotion that he's going yeah. through. God, from the guy that's burning down there, and I just jettisoned my firefighting equipment, and now he's burning, and he's calling me, and I can't get to him. And then the adulation of feeling, oh, he bailed out, and he's okay. And I says, yeah, get your ass out here and get me. And so then he did come out and get me. <clears throat> of course, here you bailed out, see? And uh, so there's the officer's club, and you gotta tell the story about everything. And, uh, and, my, and my squadron commander, Jake Engel, he comes up and he says, hey, uh, he says, tell me, I got a couple of questions. He says, uh, what, what were the indications? You know, did the, you know, what, uh, we have a panel full of a lot of, mm-hmm. a lot of faults, and a big master caution light comes on, and, and he says, he says, well, which one of those lights came on? You know, I thought, fuck, <laughs> you kidding me? The only thing I saw was a big red master caution light that was accentuated and confirmed by the fact that there was a grinding noise <laughs> and fire shot out the front. And then uh, that's all I remember, Jake. And then I kept thinking about seeing that airplane flying off. You know, it was a big pole sticking out of the canopy, and I could see it, and I could see the runway now, and that horrible feeling. And so I couldn't sleep that night. So about 3 o'clock in the morning, I called maintenance control. I says, hey, uh, you guys got the engine yet? And they says, yeah, they just brought it in, and uh, it's in hangar so-and-so. It's on a dolly, you know, you can go and look at it if you want to. And in a jet engine's, it usually crushes part of the intake or the, you know, the compressor blades that spin. Mm-hmm. As they're spinning, they can tell what the RPM was that they crush and then they're bent back and they can have a pretty good idea of what the power of the engine was. And so it was really eerie. And I got in the car and I went down there to mission control. There's nobody on the field. It's kind of drizzly, you know. And there's, there's the hangar. So I drive up, open the door. And sure enough, I look over there, and there's the engine. It's on an engine stand. And the, excuse me, the top of the fuselage is still there, and then the tail is all burnt and, and whatever. So I walk over there up to the engine by the side, see. And, uh, and, I, know, and I know they can tell the power on the engine by the bent blades. And there's the, the, the face of it. So all you do is walk around, walk around and look at that. So I stopped there for a little bit. And, and you safety or you have a horrible accident rate for some, for some reason. A lot of accidents and stuff. Our, the old Air, F-100 engine, was, it had problems with it. And, and uh, so I thought, boy, they're going to hang me for this. You know, the first thing they do on an accident rate is they blame the pilot. See, it's pilot error, everything. And I took a deep breath and I thought, I'm going to walk around and look at the front of this engine on the intake, and then I'll know. And uh, that may be the end of my flying, you know, my career. I jumped out of a perfectly good airplane. <laughs> so I went around and looked at the face of the engine. And the blades, it crushed the intake into a kind of a D section. So all the blades were straight. 
and the ones that were which crushed the uh, the blades they weren't rotating like that they were crushed straight in like mm. that zero so, power zero rpm zero rpm at impact and i thought god you know maybe there was something wrong with the engine <laughs> and with that i went back and um, had a good night's sleep so you end up i mean uh you know doing other jobs in the in the air force um uh, like you already talked about, you went and he had to go and get your degree since you didn't have a college degree. Yeah. Eventually, you you retire from the Air Force. Um, and then what? What after you retired from the Air Force? And I guess even as you were, even before you retired for the Air Force, you were kind of doing some stuff with your brother. You were starting this kind of crazy test pilot. You were flying these little uh, homemade flew, planes yeah, that your brother was making. Yeah, I flew a couple of those before I retired. But then the retirement thing was uh, uh, had a big problem uh, with the Air Force at this time. And uh, it was in the 70s. And the military, at least the Air Force, was permeated with drugs, all kinds of drug problems and stuff. And uh, so uh, Hosmer, the, the wing commander, says, hey, Dick, go down and take over the field maintenance thing. You're a maintenance guy. And you know, I'll make your squadron commander of a maintenance squadron. So I got 420 maintenance people. And we do engine overhauls and brake overhauls and stuff. Not crew chief stuff, but just kind of field maintenance thing. And it was impermeated with drugs. Uh, a lot of drugs with the people. And it, I never was a smoker. And I knew that smoking was bad for everybody for anybody, and, uh, and it, was, it was it was one guy, we were an anti-smoking, see, maybe that was kind of unique, because everything was built around cigarettes and alcohol, mm. the social environment. There was one guy, his name was Al Munch, and he was smoking all the time, and we're at the, in the club, and they were talking and arguing, and typical Friday night BS, and I says, Al, look at that, I says, look at the cigarettes, uh, it, you know, it, it's got you. He said, nah, I could give it up any time. We have a big argument, you know. I said, I'll tell you what. I said, here's, here's five, ten, here's a $10 bill. I put it down on the table. He says, you can't go 20 minutes without a cigarette. Ah, oh, yeah. Oh, God. And so, and I knew he couldn't because he's addicted addicts. <laughs> anyway, he was a big addict for nicotine. And it wasn't more than six or eight minutes later that he came back. He had a whole lung full of smoke, and he blew it in my face. And he took the $5 bill, and he threw it on the ground. <laughs> so anyway, I had a maintenance squadron, and I said there's going to be no smoking in my orderly room or any of the buildings. Well, that didn't go over too well with a lot of people. And another thing, I had a third of my, third of my troops were female, female maintenance people, really good. And, uh, but they would lock them up in the WAF, the, the WAF barracks at night. And they had, you know, some big WAF sergeant would control the- What's a WAF? Oh, uh, women in the Air Force. Okay. Yeah, that's right, women in the Air Force. Anyway, there was a big sergeant that would control all these women, and they'd lock them up at night. And my, my other squadron, he had all the crew chiefs, and they would sneak in and play with my, play with my WAF, you know, get in trouble and he'd get caught playing with them inside, sneaking in. 
And uh, so the, the JAG, and I had court-martial authority, and we were doing a lot of drug stuff. People really hung out in drugs. I even had a couple of general court-martials, guys trying to torch the building and sabotage my car and attack me with kung fu darts. It was just really a mess. And a lot of marijuana. So, uh, uh, and I says, look, I want, it says, why in the world are you, you going to lock up a third of my troops, females, and all the guys, they can run around downtown and raise hell, but they have to stay in this WAP barracks. I said, that's, I says, look, I'm the commander, they're my people, and I want them all in my barracks. And they would say, Colonel Rutan, do you have any idea what would happen if we put females in the barracks? I says, yeah. I know exactly what would happen. In about 10 days, it would sort itself out and we'd be back to normal and they could have all the rights and liberties that all the guys have. You know, I'll put one corner downstairs it'd be the wife ended. ended. Oh, no, man, they wouldn't gonna do that at all. Uh, well, the no smoking thing and trying to lock, unlock my wife at night. Uh, then I was throwing kids out of the Air Force for doing drugs. Boy, there's some horrible stuff that was happening to these kids. Uh, but then what would bother me is I'd go, I'd go to the commander's reception sometime. You know, the wing commander, he'd have the other officers into his. And I'd look out on the back at these receptions and the wives would be out there token, you know, they'd be smoking marijuana. And I thought, I'm throwing kids out of the Air Force. Hmm for what the WAFs are doing back there. And I looked around at the whole scene. Now I had a great combat record. I had all my uh, uh, military training, command and staff done, all those things. I was on my way to be chief of staff. And I thought, you know, it happened just like that. Uh, I turned around and I went over to the orderly room or whatever the thing was, CBPO, and I says, I'm going home. And I had 20 years and a microsecond, <laughs> just enough for the retirement. And uh, that was another area of something that I just wasn't ready for, the politics of that. Uh, so then I went out and got a hold of my brother and we flew around the world. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and that that uh that story is uh you know a, a crazy story of you know as you're going through this thing as you're as you uh you know get together the money and speaking of cigarettes you know you it, at one point you get a, a tobacco company that's going to sponsor the whole thing you won't take their money uh so you scrap this thing together you know you were talking earlier about the Voyager aircraft itself and this is cool cuz I remember it Dave remembers it Dave probably remembers it better than I did cuz he was a little uh uh aircraft addict like you were uh -huh, yeah. me I just thought it was cool but the whole thing weighed like you know 500 pounds or something like this and and you guys took this thing you fly this thing around the world you got incredible details of that inside this book um you know Sleep deprivation, that's not, what, nine days it took you to do this? Uh, you get done with that. Um, you do a, you, you run for Congress out here in California. I mean, you got all kinds of stuff in this book. You, you set a bunch of records. Um, tried to go around the world again in a balloon. That was interesting. 
<laughs> well, I thought, you know, here I am successful around the world in an airplane. It's just, you know, after you do something like that, you're looking for, you know, uh, what else can I do? What else is out there? Has anybody gone around the world in a balloon nonstop? You end up saved by a parachute again. <laughs> yep. That's right. It bailed out of that thing. <laughs> Only this time it was fully funded. So I got Baron Hilton and Pepsi sponsors. I got a million and a half dollars and uh, built this pressurized capsule that was pressurized. I could stay in the stratosphere, even sit on the moon. Uh, closed loop life support system, the radios. We launched out of Albuquerque about, well, we had about a three hour delay on the launch, which saved our lives, really. And they launched us, Baron Hilton cut the thing and sirens and patriotic music and we launched off or on our way around the world. <laughs> anyway, at 30,000 feet, uh, to do a design screw up by the manufacturer, uh, the balloon wouldn't vent. So as it started to heat and expand, it wouldn't vent, so it actually ruptured the balloon. The helium envelope blew the whole bottom of it out. Of course, <laughs> uh, biggest, not a big explosion, but it's enough to bounce us off the floor when that thing let go. And now we're coming down. And uh, we launched out to fly around the world and didn't even get out of the county. <laughs> That's an opportunity for character development. <laughs> I ended up in a Choya cactus patch. Guy says, well, what are you going to do next? I says, well, this is the first day of our second attempt. <laughs> but anyway, since there's only one first, nobody gives a crap about who does anything second. Uh, a guy, a Swiss watch company. Uh, God, I don't want to say the wrong I think it was Breitling, the Breitling Orbiter. They took off in an incredible flight, Tim and Jones and Pertron Picard, neat guy. And I sat there and watched them. And I even made the comment in public that it was all—it's very nice to be in competition with those who have absolutely no chance of success. <laughs> 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 Whoops. And so, I don't know, my co-pilot, he was not totally honest with me about parachutes. And... Uh, now, real strong winds on the ground, like 40-mile-an-hour winds in a parachute. Sheesh. And if you don't do everything exactly right, you're going to get hurt really bad. And unfortunately, he wasn't truthful with me about his parachute experience. And so uh, he jumped out first and got a good shoot. But without knowing how to handle a high-wing landing, uh, Parachutes are neat. They'll save your life in, fl in flight, but it'll kill you on the ground yeah. by being drug across the desert. And I ended up, uh, I landed really, you know, starting you know, to step off your car at 40 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. That's <laughs> Your rough. feet hit and it really flips you around. Anyway, he didn't know anything about that. He landed backwards and he got some severe injuries. <laughs> and I landed properly uh, going backwards and hit, my helmet hit the ground so hard I thought it was going to break. And by the time I got both of those things jettisoned, I was in a Choya cactus patch. Eesh. You know, the jumping cactus, a little needle barbs and stuff. And I was looking through my, you know, look, looking through this cactus in my face at our million-dollar balloon. <laughs> uh, 
of course, it, it would hit and, and knock off some of the propane tanks and it'd go back up again and hit again and, and it discharged different stuff and finally <laughs> hit a power line in Texas and, oh. and it burned to the ground. Well, that one burned to ground, I mean, but you had already uh, made it as the first person around the world without stopping or refueling right. with the with the Voyager, which is, a, is an awesome story inside this book. Um, and you know, you, you've talked a little bit about it on the podcast, but to get the full story, the book lays it out, all kinds of issues you overcame. Um, just, just, a, just, a, just an incredible story. And uh, you know, one of the many reasons you were inducted into the Aviation Hall of Fame. Yep. Um, and uh, I mean, the, the stories in the book—they're just incredible. Um, if if you're listening, definitely just just order this book. And uh, you know, I, 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 we've been talking for a pretty long time now. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to take up you know forever. Um, but uh, but Dave, what do you got? You got any questions? I got all sorts of questions, but <laughs> I mostly just enjoyed listening. Um, I, I'm you know th- we're three and a half hours into this almost, and I'm just just captivated uh-huh. hearing the stories. And and I I routinely get to say this because I get to sit off over here off to the side when when Jocko does these podcasts, and I just get to watch people have these conversations. But the aviation conversations are are unique and they're special to me because I could picture a lot of the things you're talking about. I can picture the way you're describing them. But un, uh, unrelated to that, I've been sitting here thinking this whole time about a saying that, and I think it's it's some phrase that says, don't meet your heroes, something like that, which I think is like a, a some catchphrase that says like, well, don't meet your heroes because when you meet them, you're going to be disappointed because you've created this image you've had of them in your mind. Well, I've gotten to meet several of my heroes and never once, never once have I been disappointed. But what's unique about this for me, sir, is that all the other people I've ever met, I can only read about them in books and, and hear about the things that they've done. But I know you because I got to see what you did. I was old enough and we were modern enough that what you did in that airplane in 1986 and I can vividly remember the three loops you did over Mojave when you landed and getting, I, I can picture that as a, as a teenager, already captivated, captivated by airplanes. So to get to sit here with you, knowing who you are, not from books, but from actually seeing it happen live and in person, this is just an absolute remarkable day for me. So I can't thank you enough for letting me be part of this. This has been, this has been awesome. I am I'm honored to have met one of my heroes today. This well, is good thank stuff. you very much. This uh, the. My brother come up and he says, with the advent and availability of, uh, it it reminds me of an opportunity I had to meet the king, the now king of England. (laughs) But anyway. Well, what happened when you met the king of England? Well, I called him Hey Chuck, and that didn't go over too well. (laughs) He's a fellow fighter pilot. Americans don't bow down to royalty in any case. I'm an American. (laughs) Hey Chuck, well, anyway. uh, The the bird said that with the availability of carbon fiber, he thinks it's possible to build an airplane light enough that will carry enough fuel to go around the world. Now, the airplane took off, these are round numbers, uh, 10,000 pounds, 3.6 tons of aviation gas, 3.6 tons. 
the, the carbon fiber structure weighed 926 pounds <laughs> and a wingspan bigger than a Boeing 737 and a cockpit half the size of one of the restrooms <laughs> on a 737. <laughs> but all of that, that 926 pounds had to carry 3.6 tons of fuel, two engines, <sighs> avionics, radios, two hardy soles, little food and water, and, uh, and launch off. I, it's one of those things that you get on a train one day and you realize the train's going off a cliff and it's too late, you can't get off. Uh, you know, five and a half years, I've told everybody, hey, we're going to fly around the world. Help us out. Had no money. Volunteers. Uh, begged and borrowed a quarter million dollars worth of carbon fiber. Uh, half a million dollars worth of avionics and radars back in those old days with no GPS and so forth. <laughs> Uh, a mission control system and set that whole thing up. And I describe it in the book, the, the, first, the first part of the, the next five minutes. And, and I named the book because how many times in my life have I sat in a cockpit and wondered what the next five minutes of my life was going to be like? <laughs> and there have been a number of places. And I haven't, we haven't even talked about some of the flight test stuff that we did with BIRDS airplanes. But the book starts with uh, trying to put put the thing in perspective. What did it feel like? Uh, when I first started going out and giving my talks, my wife, and I met her after, after the flight, and she listened to a couple of my lectures, and I'm kind of a technical person. And I, I think it's important that my audience knows how many fuel tanks we had and how we sequenced them and, and, and how the L over D and all of that other stuff. And finally, she come up to me and she says, Dick, she says, nobody gives a frick about how many fuel tanks. <laughs> he said, why don't you tell them what it felt like? And so I changed the whole tenor of the book. And it wasn't, it, the book's not written for aviation, as you can tell. It was written for, to try to, to, try to talk about uh, challenges and motivation and, uh, and some of the emotional challenge that we had along the way. Uh, and trying to set that up, and the book, the book starts with, I'm sitting in the end of the runway at Edwards Air Force Base that morning. We had roughly 25% more fuel than we'd ever had on board before, much less flight tested it. Uh, the airplane was, uh, of course, there wasn't much to it, so it's pretty flexible and it could bend. And I'm sitting there thinking, uh, because it, the two and a half years of flight tests and the 69 flights, we had some horrible emergencies. Uh, many, many May days. The propeller blade came off and it ripped the engine off. It was just hanging in the bottom of the cowling. And flight control problems. It ran into some rain and almost uh, one of the airfoils on the airplane didn't like rain and we found out about it the hard way and we just barely flew out of the rain in time to save. I mean, there was numerous stories about that. It's in the book. But try to to try to, to set up the situation that I'm sitting at the end of the runway, what am I thinking about? What's gonna happen? Trying to remember some of the stuff that's happened ahead at the time. And uh, uh, another thing is, you know, people are really interesting, interpersonal relationships. Uh, I met, I met, uh, I separated from my first wife and later on I met a, another girl her name is Gina, Gina Yeager. 
and we had a big and romantic thing. And about the time we met, Bert says, hey, how about doing this around the world thing? I said, wow, okay. This is, uh, Bert, you design it, and Gene and I will fly this thing around the world. So we're off on this five-year odyssey, this romantic odyssey. And it was really good. I've, I mean, some of the most interesting times in my life. But then, for some reason, she decided to... Uh, uh, well, she got out of she got out of the bed and went into the other bedroom, and I didn't have enough time to replace her, and there was a whole bunch of pressure going on. So all of a sudden, we're we're have this romance ended, and we weren't even talking to each other, and now we got to go and fly around the world together. And the fact is that uh, it takes two pilots to do that. You know, you take turns, but she couldn't fly the airplane. Uh, she didn't want to learn how to operate in any of the systems. I kept saying, damn it, uh, I can't do this thing by myself. I need to have another pilot. You need to learn this, but she wouldn't. And I says, if you don't learn how to run and set up the nav systems and all the other complicated things about this airplane, I'm going to replace <coughs> you with an actual pilot. And she looked at me and says, you either take me or I'll burn the airplane. So my choices were two. And one of them would have been in jail. <laughs> and so when we, the two of us, climbed into that airplane that day, that morning at Edwards Air Force Base, uh, I had no idea how we were going to do this. <laughs> what did you think your percentage it, 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 chance of a success was? Well, none. I was. It was all <laughs> set up. It was to go. Uh, it didn't have enough time to fix any of these things. Uh, the weatherman came up one day and he says. You know, we've been working really hard on this thing to get all the systems, the mission control, the weather, the communication systems, the worldwide, all this stuff had to be set up. And it says, I, uh, and the weather was terrible. And uh, we had missed the weather window. And it was in December, and it was outside of the weather window. And the weather guy, Len Snellman, comes up and he says, hey, Dick. He says, well, we missed the weather window. We have to wait till next year. And I says, <laughs> All of this stuff that were borrowed, all these com all these big, huge computers and communication systems were all borrowed, and I didn't know if I could get the uh, the all that equipment back in a year and all the people back in a year. And I looked at him and I says, "Lynn, I said the airplane's not ready yet. It's close." He says, uh, "When the airplane is finally ready, I'm going to walk outside." It's a metaphor. So I'm going to walk outside. And if it's raining, I'll wait. And if it's not raining, then I'm going to go. I said, you go back in your weather thing, and you find me a way around the world outside of the weather window. And next day he comes back and says, hey, Dick, I think I found you a way, except for one thing. Can't get you across Africa. I, and the map, look at the world map, big wind maps. Africa is only this bit. <laughs> I worry about that when we get there. Profound, as you see in the book. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so anyway, I wanted I wanted to, uh, to rest when the airplane is finally ready, and all the people sign off—not metaphorically—they they say that it's ready. The engines, the systems, everything is ready to go. You know, the refueling and Bowsers are ready at Edwards Air Force Base. The press has been notified. <clears throat> and I thought, when that's done, Gene and I we can go up in the Sierras and just rest. Needed to have some rest, you know, just to 
be ready. And uh, when it was finally ready, the next morning we had a weather briefing that it was either go or no go at 10 o'clock. And I walked into the weather briefing and Lynn Snellman, the weather guy, comes in and he was smiling. And I thought, oh, shoot. <laughs> and he's telling me, but during the briefing, I realized that he, that the weather is perfect for departure, except for Africa. And I thought, God, I would just, you know, just one day off. I could just go and get my head clear. One day is all I wanted, but there wasn't. And it's just like, it's just like General Eisenhower when he was on D-Day. They all looked at him and said he had to say go or no go. Mm -hmm. And uh, I says, okay, let's go. And in 10 seconds, I was alone in the room. Everybody had left. You know, it's all choreographed where the engine starts, take it over there, set it up at Edwards Air Force Base, the fuel bowsers. And we had the last, the last supper with the family. Uh, uh, then I thought that here I am, I should have the VIP quarters. The VIP quarters out there at Edwards, then I didn't check on it. I trusted somebody else to do that. Well, they didn't. They didn't know anything about it. And so I ended up in a, in a real old barracks, kind of a, just one step up from an open bay barracks. And in those things, they have uh, central heating and the ducks whistle and they make a lot of noise. And this, I go in this room and it's bare. And it's an old military bed with, you know, the steel thing on mm -hmm. it. And it, it's just a terrible thing. I thought, I thought, God. Now I asked the driver, I says, well, hey, there's the VIP quarters over there. You know, here I'm going to fly around the world. At least somebody, he says, I, he didn't even know anything about that. <laughs> God. Okay. So I'm laying in there and listening to that. And, of course, you know, it's... Uh, wake up in a handful of hours and I'm laying there and it's hot and, and I'm trying to get some sleep and all of a sudden there's a knock on the door. I thought, knock on the door? Who in the hell is this? So I'm really pissed. I get up, open the door and our flight surgeon, Dr. George Julin, is there. He's our flight guy for all of our medical stuff. And I said, George, what are you doing? And he says, oh, Dick, I forgot. And he had a little box. You know, like the children's milk cartons. They're, you know, they're, mm -hmm. they open them up and stuff. He says, I want a urine sample when you wake up. Uh, and here's the box that I want, it, want you to do it. And I thought, George, you woke me up. <laughs> you woke me up to give me a box to piss in. <laughs> And then I was really pissed. I, mean, I, was, I was so keyed up about that. I don't think I slept when the, finally the wake-up time called and we went out and called and board the airplane with no, no sleep, per se, and a, and a co-pilot that wasn't talking to me and didn't know how to do run any of the systems. And we took off having no idea how in the hell I was going to do this. And uh, we thought about all the stuff we'd gone through in the last five and a half years. And then it was time, and I thought, you know, Dick, you're probably going to be dead in the next five minutes. What you really ought to do right now is uh, shut the engine down and open the little canopy and get out and walk out in the desert. At least you'll be alive tomorrow. And then I thought, wait a minute. I asked all these people all these years <laughs> to come and help me. And a lot of them sacrificed. 
quite a bit. Some of them even lost their jobs to come and help. Had I done that, <laughs> they would have had every right to chase me down and commit premature euthanasia for some damn coward that totally deserved it. <laughs> so I said, there's no way out. There's no way. So that morning, trepidation, I pushed both the throttles wide open, released a little tiny brake like a foot on a nose wheel or something, foot on a skateboard, because brakes are really heavy, so we didn't take any brakes. And that thing lumbered down the runway, and uh, uh, it accelerated. Yeah, there was a acceleration checkpoint, and I, I asked. I put more fuel on board the airplane than what the designer wanted, and he was really mad about that. But I was worried about running out of fuel. I always had this nightmare that I'd run out of fuel 100 miles short. Hell of a record, but we still failed on first around the world. So he put up some flag markers down the runway, and he says, Dick, you need to have this specific air, airspeed as you cross each one of the markers. And because you don't have really have wheel brakes on the airplane and uh, to be able to stop before you run out in, in Edwards Dry Lake, you need to have these target airspeeds as you cross them. Well, he didn't know it, but Dick was really tired. He had been at this thing five and a half years. And all this emotional things with my girlfriend, plus all the other things that we had to deal with, the only thing I wanted, I just wanted this freaking thing over with. And I didn't care if I was on fire. <laughs> I wasn't going to quit. So I had to give him a blood oath to my brother. Okay, I'll do that. I promise, promise. Knowing full well, there's no freaking way I'm going to quit. I want it over with. I just, you get to that point. And so we started accelerating. As the, as the flag markers came by, we were starting to kin, you know, one knot low, two knots, three knots. And at midfield, the last marker, we needed uh, 86 knots. Yeah, 100 knots for takeoff, 86 knots. Uh, and I was four knots low. So I keyed the mic button. It says we're four knots low at midfield. And nobody said anything. I think everybody knew there was no freaking way I was going to quit. <laughs> Besides that, the airspeed indicator is over here, see? And here's, here's 65. It only had to go a little bit farther to 100. A little bit more. Just a little bit more. That's, this is all I have to And I looked down at the end of the runway. It's still a mile, and a, a mile and a half away. I said, shoot, there's no problem. Not knowing that the faster you go, the more rapid you consume the runway. <laughs> and... Uh, so we hit our, our rotation speed, and I gave it three more knots from Mom. And the wingtips were dragging on the runway. And I reached up and grabbed that control stick and says, Well, Dick, if you've never been smooth at any time in your life, you better be smooth now, because this is the big one. And I reached down there and started pulling back on the stick, and the canard lifted, and the boom tank started coming up, and I could see the wings come up slowly, slowly, slowly. And I swear to God, they were going to touch over my head. <laughs> and with 95% of that world's longest runway, it lifted off. And uh, actually, I have the video, if you want to look at it or see it or include it. But the wings came up real slow, and it lifted off. And it flew in ground effect, and it finally got to 100 knots. And if it got to 100 knots, we had enough power to climb. And so we shook off the wingtips, which were damaged, lost three foot of wingspan, 
And they were talking about aborting. I says, there ain't no fine way I'm going to quit. They're just not going to quit under any circumstances. I don't care what's wrong with the airplane. It could be on fire. And so we turned and uh, put W in the compass. And metaphorically, I held W in the compass for nine bloody days and looked up without turning around. And there was Edwards Air Force Base ahead of us. I guess the world is round. It's so amazing to me that normally if you fly a long ways to get home, you got to turn around and come back. But if you just keep going in the same direction and you get home, you know, it's still, it's still strange. You know, I guess maybe the world is round, but I know one thing. <laughs> it's a bloody long ways around the world. <laughs> the world is 25,000 miles at the equator, or just under that. Uh, the Voyager actually flew 26,358 statute miles unrefueled. We got home with one half of 1% of our takeoff fuel. So we just barely made it back. But that morning, <clears throat> it was beautiful in the LA basin at the high desert. Uh, tens of thousands of people came out and uh, cars were lined up all the way back into Lancaster and a lot of people. And somebody says, hey, Dick, if you orbit for 20 minutes more, you'll have an even nine days. And I always thought, well, that would sound better. <laughs> and so we orbited around and flew over the crowd and uh, said things like, hey, Dick, what time is it? They says, well, it's Miller time. You only go around once. That was the beer at the time. Another one says, uh, uh, Dick, what are you going to do now? I says, I'm going to Disneyland. <laughs> and Eisner was the head of Disney at the time. And his wife said that that was the first time that that thing had ever been said in, in public. And then I said after that, knowing that, that, would, that I invented that or whatever, that uh, I guess Joe Namath or some football player that won the Super Bowl, and he says, what are you going to do now, Joe, or whatever his name was? Well, I'm going to Disneyland. Well, they probably paid him $50,000 to do that. <laughs> Didn't pay me anything. <laughs> but, uh, but that day I went out and we put the landing gear down, and it was going to land in the dry lake. I mean, uh, we were so light then I could have landed on my briefcase, but it was going to land at Edwards Air Force Base in the famous Murat Dry Lake. And so we came around. And another thing I was worried about is on the dry lake, there's no depth perception. And I had basically been awake for nine days. I sat in the seat for three, three nights, four days, three nights. Going into the fourth night, I says, even Dick, you can't do this. You've got to get some sleep. But I couldn't put her in the seat. Because when we were heavy, if the autopilot kicked off, the airplane would self-destruct in 15 seconds. And I couldn't get to the controls. So we had to wait till we burned off enough fuel that it would dampen dampen itself out. So we came around and touched down. Uh, a good buddy, Mike Melville, he counted it down to five to four, three, one, touchdown. On uh, aviation's hallowed ground, you know, where Chuck Yeager and Scott Crossfield chased the demons in the sky. And what an honor to be able to land in that place. <clears throat> and tax, taxied up to the crowd and shut off those engines that had run for solid for nine days. And I looked around at everybody, and I set my head, head back a little bit, and I closed my eyes, 
and it felt every bit as good as I had imagined it for the last five and a half years. <sighs> and the airplane hangs in the National Air and Space Museum in the mall. Well, I think they're doing some renovation, but it hung there. It, you know, it's a tribute to a couple of things, to the freedom that we have in our country, and also that if you can, like Mom says, if you can dream <laughs> it, you can do it, and the only way to fail is if you quit and manage the motivation. <clears throat> and in the book there, when uh, President Reagan and Nancy presented to us the uh, Citizens Medal, uh, at a, just a couple days after the flight, they're in uh, Crystal City in Los Angeles. Uh, there were some speeches given. You know, Bert and I said something, and Gina said something, and the president said something. But we we got to meet them and get acquainted with them about who they were. And uh, when we first met in the ante room before we went on stage to accept the medals, we started talking. And we were nervous. We we're going to meet the president, see? And as we sat there and started to talk a little bit, where we were, we reversed positions subconsciously. And I realized they're as nervous as we were. <laughs> but this is the presidency. <laughs> and we got invited to Washington and, and had dinner a couple of times in a state dinner, sitting at the same table with Ronald Reagan. What an, what an honor that was. And uh, he is every bit. And in the book, it... it I found the transcripts of the words that we're saying, and I read them today. I says, I said that extemporaneously? <laughs> but it turned out really well. And especially it's all done because, like we talked during that presentation with the, with the president about freedom, how precious that is. Well... No doubt about that, um, and and the book definitely spells that out. And um, just the the whole story is incredible. Your story is incredible. Um, I want to close out with uh, with something that you write in the book. Something you write in the book about your your best friend Howard K. Williams, as we talked about earlier. Who you call Howie? Again, he was shot down in Vietnam. It was there was a lot of unknowns about what had actually happened to him. You had that mystery phone call. And uh, it wasn't until 1992 when his remains were recovered uh, by the POW MIA Resolution Task Force. And as you mentioned earlier, you, you attended the service. And you wrote about that in the book. You say... Um, Howie's military funeral at Arlington National Cemetery was an impressive ceremony with full military honors befitting a fallen hero. The POW MIA name bracelets worn by his friends and family were ceremoniously added to the grave. As I turned to leave the gravesite, I saw Howard's son. He was only four or five when I had last seen him at Luke, but at this moment, I couldn't believe my eyes. He was the spitting image of his father. My buddy would have been so proud of his boy. Future visits to Washington, D.C. would always find me at the Vietnam War Memorial. That symbolic black granite wall contains more than 58,000 names of fellow warriors killed and missing in action. 
I run my fingers over the name of one of America's best and one of my very best friends, Howard K. Williams. Each time I stand before his engraved name, I swear I see his reflection smiling back at me from within the dark granite surface. I continue to miss him. And for all these years, I have wondered what really happened. I recall the camaraderie and fellowship of the fledgling fighter pilots off to test their skills in mankind's epitome of human competition, deadly combat. And I thank them, especially Howie, for their sacrifice that allows me to live a full life. So, sir, thank you. Um, Thanks to you and all your comrades uh, that served and sacrificed for our freedom. Well, we, thank you. I look at it as a as a fellow fellow warrior. <clears throat> there, just one thing. There's an individual. His name is Jeremiah Denton, and he spent many years as a prisoner of war of the North Vietnamese. And when they picked him up. And he got off the airplane at Clark Air Force Base after enduring all of that. They asked him, there was microphone set up, and if he wanted to say a few words. And he gets off the airplane. He looks around for his first two or three steps on free soil. He walked up to the microphone and he said something to me so profound that it epitomizes fellow warriors. And, and I'm going to say it, but my, I'm going to choke up because I can't I, I try to imagine what he had gone through and the words that he spoke that morning at Clark. And what he said was, I consider it an honor to have had the privilege of serving my country under difficult circumstances. And I think God, as long as there's that kind of people that look back on that whole thing as an honor to serve his country. And I think as long as there are those people, our flag will still be free. Yes, sir. Yes, sir, indeed. And I don't think I can say anything else beyond that other than thank you. Thank you, Junko. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. And with that, Dick Rutan has left the building also. Dave Burke left the building. He's escorting. He's escorting Dick Rutan back to uh, the hotel. They're probably going to sit and talk about uh, flying for a while. (laughs) Uh, So just incredible story. Obviously, um, Read the book, get the book, the next five minutes it's called. It's just incredible to be able to sit here with a guy like that and hear these stories. Just rolling in to North Vietnam, tracers everywhere, locking locking eyes with those enemy fighters trying to kill you and doing that day after day after day after day after day after day after day. 
that's the American fighting spirit. So thanks for listening. If you want to support the podcast, go to jockofuel.com. We make the best, cleanest, most effective supplements to put inside your body. So go to jockofuel.com and get some of that. If you have a Wawa near you, you have a vitamin shop, military commissaries, Hannaford's, Dash stores in Maryland, Wakefern, ShopRite, Circle K, HEB, of course, down in Tejas, Murphy's down in the southeast, and Meyer, Meyer in the Midwest. Get, go get Jocko Fuel. It's a great way to support the podcast, what we're doing here, and it's a great way to support yourself. Don't forget about OriginUSA.com. Go get your hunt gear, jujitsu gear, rash guards, geese, T-shirts, boots, Delta jeans. Get yourself some Delta jeans from OriginUSA.com. The, you can also get stuff from Jocko Store, JockoStore.com. Got all kinds of stuff to get, I guess. Get a bunch, get yourself a bunch of cool stuff from jockostore.com. And uh, you guys know the rest, man. Subscribe to the podcast. Check out jockounderground.com. We got the YouTube channel. We got Psychological Warfare. A bunch of books. Again, the book, the important book for today is The Next Five Minutes uh, by Dick Rutan. Just a, a, an awesome book, an awesome read. You know about Jocko Publishing. We got a bunch of books. Only Cry for the Living by Holly McKay. I've written a bunch of books. You can check those out as well. Uh, kids books, Way the Warrior Kid 1, 2, and 3. Get some of that. Echelon Front, look, these principles that we talk about, about combat, they also apply to everyday life, to business. And we talk about those and we teach those at Echelon Front. Echelonfront.com for details. Come to one of our live events so that these lessons get shared, they get passed on. We also have the online training academy at extremeownership.com where you can learn this stuff online. Don't You don't need to go somewhere to get this information. And also, if you want to help service members, active and retired, you want to help their families, you want to help Gold Star families, check out Mark Lee's mom. Mama Lee, she's got a charity organization. And if you want to donate or you want to get involved, go to americasmightywarriors.org. Don't forget about heroesandhorses.org. You got Micah up in the wilderness helping people find themselves. Yep, Dave Burke's on Twitter. He's on the gram. He's on Facebook, at Dave R. Burke. I'm there too, at Jocko Willink. And thanks once again to Dick Rutan for joining us, for sharing his lessons learned, sharing these incredible experiences. And thanks to him and to all the other military aviators that rule the sky and give us dominance. And they pay a heavy price for it. And thanks to the rest of our military personnel who also pay the price every day to keep us safe and protect our way of life in this great nation. And the same goes to the police, law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, border patrol, secret service, all first responders. You all keep us safe here at home, and we thank you for that. And to everyone else out there today, you heard what Dick Rutan said. And he talks about it in the book. He talks about what his mother would tell him. And at one point in the book we didn't cover today, he talks about sometimes when he was facing an, a seemingly insurmountable problem or challenge, he would run. He would go and run to clear his mind. He'd do it for physical fitness, but he did it to clear his mind 
to gain perspective. And sometimes he says in the book, he would chant that cadence that he spoke of, that he learned from his mom, which is, you only fail if you quit. And that is the truth. So go out there, don't quit, and keep getting after it. And until next time, this is Jocko, out.